0: Hey hey, it's Conrad Thompson and you're listening to Grillin' JR with the voice of wrestling, Mr. Jim Ross.
1: Jim, how are you, man? I'm fine, Conrad. Thanks for asking. Hope you're well as uh, too and uh we're here in the in the hot of summer here in America. It's hot in Oklahoma, it's hot in Jacksonville. It's hot everywhere, but we want to wish everybody a, a uh, early happy th- uh, 4th of July. Be careful, have fun. Uh watch your social gathering or your mask. Be smart, don't be defiant and enjoy the holiday and whatever the hell you do, do some grilling, man. Conrad, there's no better holiday to grill for me anyway, than the 4th of July.
0: It is a top five grilling holiday. And we hope you guys are stocking up over at JRsBBQ.com. We hope you enjoyed fighter fest part one last night. And of course, part two coming up next Wednesday but today it's all about Brett Hart. Believe it or not today, July 2nd is Brett Hart's birthday. So we wanted to do a bit of a Bret Hart show. And, uh, the original idea was let's cover Brett's 96 and 97. And then I sent you all of my notes, Jim. It's over a hundred pages. I don't think there's any way we get through both years today.
1: No, probably not. Th- that just says how auspicious, uh, Brett's career has been. And, and was in the ring, uh, one of my favorite, favorite talents I ever worked with, one of the favorite men I've ever known, uh, got through Brett, got introduced to his massive family, spent time actually in the dungeon with Brett and Stu. So it's uh, it's just a, been a, it's nothing but great memories by and large, uh, for, for, for thinking about Brett. So this should be a fun show. A really, one of the most respected guys in all of pro wrestling who always stood on his principles and always had great character. And, uh, and he let his work speak for itself. Uh, so I, I'm, I'm, I'm going to really look forward to this one, Conrad.
0: It's some of our most comprehensive work. And we've posted our show format, like always over at AdFreeShows.com. Uh, there's no way we'll get to all of 97. I think we'll probably just cut it off after 96 today and we'll come back to 97 another time, but. 96 was uh, quite the interesting year in wrestling. Of course, Brett starts 96 as the world champ, having just won the title at survivor series against diesel and the match is probably most remembered for being one of the very first times Some went through someone went through an announcer's table. Uh, and I think it was uh, one of diesel's best matches in the WWF. I think Meltzer even dug it. He gave it three and a half stars. I'm sure we'll talk about that in long form some other time. In December of 95, Brett found himself defending the title against the British bulldog at in your house. And it was a bloodbath that Meltzer gave four and a half stars. And in spite of these great matches, Brett felt that no matter how hard he worked, all the attention was on Sean during this time, even going so far as to say, he felt this run was almost as a transitional champion for him. He wrote in his book, I'd given Vince a five-star match with diesel, but it was so quickly passed over. It was soon forgotten. Even the buildup to my in your house match against Davey was non-existent with all that attention being lavished on the ex champion and apparently seriously injured Sean, of course, the injury that Brett is referencing is the Marine incident, which we'll cover on an upcoming Shawn Michaels episode. I'm sure, but let's talk about this. When did Vince decide and, and let, you know, WrestleMania 12 is about making Shawn Michaels,
1: uh, early on, you know, at that time, uh, the plans for uh, major events such as WrestleMania or made a little bit more, uh, farther out than I, I feel like they are nowadays. So, uh, but Sean was, you know, he, he he kept having great match after great match. And he had the one thing that Vince loved Conrad and that sizzle, the charisma. Uh, Sean had an abundance of that. Uh, and I think Vince has always been somewhat of a fan of sizzle at times more than steak. And certainly Brett always delivered steak. I thought he had plenty of sizzle, but Sean was the flavor of the week. And, and that's not, I'm not knocking Sean because I've always said that Ric Flair and Sean Michaels, are the two best all round in-ring performers that I can remember working for or working matches for. Uh, so I think it's his, it's all about the sizzle, quite frankly, but it was, it wasn't something that was free. that was just a, a spur of the moment decision. It was thought through. And, uh, and that was what the direction he decided to go. So it was, it was interesting, but you got two great workers. You can't lose the, either, either guys are champion quite frankly. So, uh, that, I think that's the story. Just sizzle was the name of the game.
0: Well, so if that's true that we knew that, Hey, that's the goal, then, then Brett's right. Right. He really is a transitional champion because we don't want diesel and Sean at WrestleMania. We want Brett and Sean at WrestleMania, but no matter who's there with Sean, Sean's going over. So. In a sense, we're going to put the belt on Brett because we know he can give Sean the type of WrestleMania match we need for Sean. Right?
1: Yeah. Brett had the great skill set to make anybody better than they actually were. And when you were as good as Shawn Michaels and you could work with an opponent on a a level like WrestleMania, then, uh, it's even better. So if you, if you really want to anoint somebody and quote unquote, make them, then that great match with, uh, with Brett is what you needed. And Brett was the perfect guy to do that. So in that context, uh, Brett was somewhat of a traditional, uh, transitional champion.
0: Let me ask why, why not just go with diesel? I know that sounds silly, but is it because you just done Sean diesel at 11? Because here at 12, it does feel like, well, diesel's a heel and Sean is a babyface, and they're friends in real life. And maybe diesel's on his way out anyway. Could that have made sense or did it not make sense since maybe diesel is leaving and we don't want to put a sh- shine a spotlight on him or is it more, we had just done it at WrestleMania 11.
1: I think we had just done it, uh, at WrestleMania 11, uh, Vince is not, you know, even when we I'll give you an example, uh, you could headline WrestleManias as long as they were both healthy and there with rock and Austin forever. Yeah, And, uh, so that was an exception to the rule. But in, in regard to that statement, Austin and Rock wrestled at uh, WrestleMania 15, 17, and 19.
0: Yeah, they didn't
1: do They didn't do back-to-backs. Right. So I think there's lot, some thought in that regard. But I, I, by and large, I think what you're going to get is a, a better match. You're going to get a better match. And if you want Sean to have that, you know, I don't, you, obviously, you would not do an Iron Man match with Diesel and Sean. That would not have fit uh, the skill sets of diesel. Uh, it would have been very challenging for Sean. Uh, you know, you get a seven foot, uh, super heavyweight type opponent and, and Kevin, not, he's not a 60 minute guy. Could he go 60? Of course he could, but that's not his forte. It would have been, not been good booking. So I think that's a situation there. Just didn't want to go back to back. And quite frankly, anybody that's paying attention would know that Brett and Sean uh, we're, we're going to give you a hell of a performance. One that people still talk about such as we are here today.
0: Let's talk about the Royal rumble. It goes down January 21st in Fresno. Uh, Brett's going to defend the world title against the undertaker. This is at the time a very rare baby face versus baby face match with two of the top guys. And it sort of happens cold too. Why does this make sense for a Royal rumble main event?
1: I don't know that it does make sense quite frankly, uh, but the, the baby face versus babyface situation doesn't concern me at all. I, I have no issues with baby face matches because the prize, the goal, the common denominator that links these two baby faces together is who leaves as a champion. So it's all about the championship. Hence why I believe the championships are going to last more often than not with a few exceptions to that rule. So, uh, yeah, it, I, I, I didn't have a problem with the baby face component whatsoever. Uh, but it, the, the match could have had a better build, but undertaker was made, you know, uh, he's going to fight for the championship, uh, all that good stuff. And I, I, I had no issues with it, but, uh, it was unique at that time to have a match that, uh, on that level, uh, between two baby faces, but I thought it worked out fine. You know, I, uh, I, I don't know, Meltzer, give it two and a quarter, three quarter stars or wherever the hell it was. I thought it was a good story. They went 28 minutes. Uh, you know, it's fun to call. So I, I, I had no issues with that whatsoever. That bookie
0: let's keep it moving and let's talk about, um, the match itself. Undertaker hits the tombstone on Brett and, and when the ref is counting diesel comes down, pulls the ref out. It causes the DQ at twenty eight thirty one. 31 Meltzer gave it two and three quarter stars. And Brett was critical of the finish saying it did little to build him for mania, what do you remember about? Brett's feelings at this time it feels you know when you go through his book here in this era that he's really just sort of frustrated with the booking and maybe the the fact that he doesn't feel like he's the um, he's the long-term plan at this point do you remember Brett being particularly frustrated in the first quarter of 96
1: well not specifically in 96 is a long time ago uh, but I know he was in general at times frustrated with the uh, with creative and I think that just it, comes back to a lack of communication. You know, uh, I I just think that he, that Brett and Vince should have been speaking more often, more in depth, uh, and Brett felt kind of like he was being passed over, futured, as they say, sometimes. So yeah, he had some frustrations without a doubt. But I still say it all comes back to uh, communication. It was there's not great communication there at that point in time.
0: Uh, the next night on raw, Brett would wrestle the new intercontinental champion Goldust, who had just won the title the night before from razor Ramon. Brett wins the match by submission. And he said he worked the match with a sprained knee and Dustin really looked after him in the match. And then later that night he would wrestle the undertaker to a no contest after raw, you know, I mentioned this because razor has been on record as saying he had a problem working with gold How did Brett receive the character,
1: uh, professionally, uh, objectively, it was a gimmick That's as a, a TV persona for God's sakes. And, you know, I, I don't know if razor had a problem working with Goldust because of the, uh, the character, the gold dust character, the androgynous, mysterious, uh, kind of darkly sexual type uh, persona or because it could not have been uh Goldust work. There's no way that you can say that, that, uh. Dustin was not a great worker, and could have a good match with anybody. So I, I think maybe it was more that he didn't want to sell for a guy that he perceived. It's that old homophobic thing, man. It's 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 just I even I even hate to mention that, but I think maybe and even Goldust's character wasn't per, per, uh, projected as gay. This uh, at least in my opinion, but nonetheless, uh, I think it had to be the character and not the the, the actual application of the match.
0: January twenty-third in San Jose, Brett would beat Diesel in a cage to retain. The next day they're in White Plains. So process what we're talking about. On the twenty-third, we're in San Jose. On the twenty-first, or twenty-fourth, rather, we're in White Plains, New York. And he's winning over Gold Dust here. And two days later, Brett would beat Diesel in a cage at Madison Square Garden. And he says on the twenty-seventh, he has a conversation with Sean. Rumors earlier that day were that Diesel and Razor might jump to WCW and Sean tells Brett that he hopes they could uh still work together after he wins the title at WrestleMania. And Brett suggested to Sean that he work with new guys like Steve Austin and Big Van Vader. Sean then tells Brett, I'd rather work with Hunter and do a little program with the one, two, three kid. And that conversation definitely rubbed Brett the wrong way. He talks about that story to this day. He even talked about it on that uh, Brett versus Sean greatest rivalries DVD. He said, he I felt,
1: was a, I was a part of that, by the way, like yes, I did the interview with those guys.
0: Yes, you did. Yeah. He said he felt like Sean was just angling to work with his buddies. Do you remember hearing that? And did you take any great issue with Sean really wanting to work with his friends that doesn't seem like that's that uncommon.
1: Taking great issue was, it was not how I would, uh, phrase that or bracket it for me, uh, not unusual guys wanting to work with people that they liked because a great wrestling match has to have a, uh, inordinate amount of cooperation and unselfishness. And, uh, so I think that that was kind of where that was. I thought Brett gave Sean great advice, but on the other hand, if Sean was going to, as the champion was going to work with, uh, uh, triple H, then that ain't going to be a bad match either. Uh, the one, two, three kid was obviously, uh, uh to help Sean Waltman get a, a boost up. And uh, I had no problem with that in, in in theory. So both guys had good information, but that was the situation. And Sean and finally got in that position where he's going to be the champ. The champ has a lot of a uh, uh, a clout as to who they want to work with, because as a promoter, you want to put the best match that you can get in the ring. The constant was going to be Sean. So now it is who do we put Sean with that he can have this great match that he perceives he'll have against uh, a Triple H and or. Uh, Xbox one, two, three kids. So, uh, both guys had good points, but, uh, that was, a that, that's not unusual Or that, you know, Austin had the same uh, rock, all, all these guys, they had guys that they, they liked like to work with. And then Vince would understand who they liked like to work with, who, who could produce a better match for the fans. And that's kind of the, generally the way that he went. So, uh, it was, uh, interesting time. And, you know, Sean was feeling his oats and, and Brett was feeling a little bit disrespected and kind of like, well, he's. I guess the best way to say disrespected, I think Brett was feeling uh, that he was being taken advantage of for all his years of service, his quality work, what he meant to the company. Uh, that, I think that was kind of the, the, the overriding feeling, I would think, anyway, for Brett at that time.
0: Uh, Brett would write that without consulting him on the decision, Sean and Pat Patterson had decided that at WrestleMania, Brett and Sean were going to wrestle in a one hour Ironman match. And Sean was going to beat Brett with the super kick and Brett said that he could tell Sean was expecting him to balk at the thought of putting him over. But Brett told him he'd put him over clean in the middle. And Sean thanked him profusely. It's been said over the years that Pat suggested they work in an Iron man match at WrestleMania events and Vince at first wasn't interested in it, but Brett uh, would say that Pat just kept on him about it. And, and eventually Vince gives in and agrees to let him have this style match. Do you remember Pat being the guy pushing for the iron man match? And, and how did you feel about it? And what do you think Vince's hesitation was?
1: Uh, well, you know, we said this before, sometimes, you know, I think Vince loves the business, <clears throat> but I think sometimes he, he doesn't love it enough to watch, uh, a, a, an hour match. And I think Vince is concerned that can, can, uh, these two great performers keep the, the attention, uh, of the audience at WrestleMania, uh, for a one hour time limit personally. Uh, I love those, uh, Ironman matches. Some of my favorite matches I've ever called have been where you've had so many falls in a, in a a time limit. I remember, you know, we've had matches, the Ironman matches with Cena was in one. I remember maybe two, but other guys as well, it gives you a, it's a great story for the announcers to tell because now the clock becomes a vital part of the process. And I like that aspect. People could understand that they could follow the clock on the screen. So I like the idea. Patterson's idea, knowing that Vince wanted the title on Sean, Vince is trying to s- set up a situation. Quite frankly, that if if executed correctly, was going to make Brett sh- or yeah Brett shine as well. Because in an hour, seeing an hour Shawn Michaels and Bret Hart for a real wrestling fan, as Patterson was, uh, was not a bad idea whatsoever. The, the, uh, so, so the Ironman match was, I thought a good idea. It was different. It never been done before at WrestleMania that I'm, I'm aware of. So I think that was a the situation there that it was Vince was concerned. Can the, will the audience accept a 60 minute time limit? Cause it's not like they're just, they're going to have a one hour time limit. And, uh, whoever wins the first fall wins the match. It's 60 minutes without question, no matter what the score is. So uh, I, I think that was kind of what that was to me and I. I thought it was a good idea, quite frankly.
0: We should also mention that, um, around this same time, Brett tells Vince that after WrestleMania, he's going to be taking six months off to do a full season of lonesome dove and Vince tells Brett, he really needs him to work. The foreign tours, which Brett says no problem too. Do you remember Brett asking for time off? Were you concerned it might hurt the house shows or were you guys okay with it? Since you're really trying to establish Sean as the top babyface after WrestleMania,
1: well, you, you don't want to lose the talent at Brett's level at Brett's level. There were very few guys who were ever at Brett's level. So yeah, you know, it's going to hurt the house shows. if He's not on the cards. He sells tickets, uh, does Brett. Um, but you know, he, Brett was ahead of the curve with a lot of our guys, as far as getting a shot at doing things outside pro wrestling i.e. this Lonesome Dove TV series. So, uh, to me, I thought that Brett being on the Lonesome Dove series for a season in a, in a solid role, a, a very strong reoccurring role was good for wrestling because it showed that one of our guys, uh, one of our, our top guy or one of our top guys for sure, uh, had, uh, was desired, desired by others to perform in another arena, shall we say? So I thought at the end of the day. That was gonna be a good thing.
0: Here's an interesting show. February third, in India, Brett would beat Tatanka, showed us over thirty thousand fans on outdoor cricket pitches. And Brett said on the sixth day of this uh tour of India, diesel Diesel tells him that him and Razor really are going to WCW for seven hundred and fifty thousand dollars a year. And Brett would write in his book that this was more than he was making how did this news affect the locker room and, and when did Vince and the office find out?
1: I think it alienated, uh, the locker room somewhat, you know, uh, both uh, Kevin and Scott are strong personalities, uh, very outspoken. You never had to guess what was on their mind or their mood. They, they were very uh, readily, uh, willing to, ex- you know, uh, ex- ex- experience that or, or to demonstrate that better said so, uh, but. You know, Brett's ability to draw outside of the United States, the only person I could think that had any kind of impact like that uh, uh, to that point was Hogan. Right. Uh, but Brett, for whatever reason, and there's a lot of ways you could skin this cat, uh, Brett was extremely over, uh, uh, not only in the, he was over in North America, obviously, but uh, the audiences abroad, uh, UK, et cetera, uh, India, whatever, uh, understood they respected Brett. They respected the art of wrestling and Brett brought that every single time. So, uh, the, the tours were imperative. Those big paid tours, you know, you bring your 18. So, uh, I'm sure that a lot of the people in the locker room were had two uh, emotions. One is uh, man. Um, some will say the minority will say, well, I'm happy for those guys getting a big, big payday. And some other people were saying good riddance. Let them go, because it created openings. It created spots, and those spots then became came up for grabs. So mixed emotions, uh, but you know, I, I I don't know why talents tell each other talents how much they're earning. It doesn't make a lot of sense to me, but uh, nonetheless, that number was bandied about, and uh, I'm sure it was it was uh, hard to swallow for some guys.
0: On raw February 5th, Brett would beat the undertaker by DQ to retain on the 17th of February, Brett would travel down to the USWA in Memphis and wrestle Jerry Lawler in a cage. Brett would retain here, of course, but the show draws an all time gate record for the city breaking any previous WWF NWA, or even Jarrett marks. How did, uh, Brett like working in Memphis? That's a little old school for him.
1: Yeah. He loved it. I think, uh, I think he loved it because. It was more, uh, traditional, a more traditional audience. Uh, you know, he did, he had fun being the, the, the visiting heel in Lawler's, uh, home territory. Uh, Lawler, an icon in Memphis for sure. Uh, you know, obviously, you know, you don't work on top in a territory for multiple generations, not just multiple months or years, generations, decades, uh, and Lawler was, a, you know, they, people thought they would they want to see magic. They want to see, you know, Lawler win like he, he beat, uh, I guess it was, who did he beat for the AWA title? Kurt or was it Bachwinkle? Wh- whatever. They wanted another magical night. So Brett had fun working as a heel, a wrestling heel. There's a difference in a wrestling heel and a, you know, a meat chopping, kicking, stomping heel. Uh, so, uh, I, he always had fun down there and he got paid well and he got respected. And uh, so all the variables of the boxes you want to check for a talent, uh, were they were checked. So I've always thought that, you know, best of my knowledge, Brett had fun. That's I remember talking to you I had, I was in Memphis. Oh, it's a lot of fun. Well, that's good. That's enough. That's all you need to hear. It was a lot of fun.
0: Hey guys, are you looking for a great father's day gift idea? I know I was, and I found it a couple of years ago with paint your life with paint your life, you get a hand painted portrait created to fit almost any budget. And it's a great gift idea for your mom, your dad, or both. You see, paint your life transforms your photos into a one of a kind beautiful hand-painted portrait done by professional artists. You can upload a photo to create anything you can imagine, maybe in a special location or a favorite pet. There's lots of options. You pick the artist, the medium, and you even get to work with the artist to make sure it's perfect. You get started in less than five minutes and you can get the portrait in as little as two weeks. You can give the most meaningful gift you've ever given at PaintYourLife.com and there's no risk. If you don't love the final painting, your money's refunded, guaranteed. And right now, as a limited time offer, get 20% off. That's right, 20% off and free shipping. To get this special offer, text the word ROSS to 87204. That's ROSS to 87204. Text ROSS to 87204. Paint Your Life. Celebrate the moments that matter most. Message and data rates may apply. See paintyourlife.com slash terms for details the uh, next big show is in your house six rage in the cage. It goes down on February 18th, 1996 from the Louisville gardens and the main event, Brett would defend the title against diesel in a steel cage. This is the cage match where diesel is about to go through the door when the undertaker pops up through the ring. Uh, and he's coming after diesel, which allows Brett to escape over the top for the win. I think this is the first time something like this happens in the WWF. Uh, what do you think of, uh that creative of having the undertaker come through the ring canvas. Uh,
1: unique, again, a different presentation, a novel way of getting another major star involved in the title picture. Uh, was it everybody's flavor of ice cream? Probably not, but I, I it was different and, uh, and it was unique and it was memorable. So, uh, no, no issues. I don't know whose idea it was. It was a good idea. it Patterson, Bruce, uh, you know, Vince himself, who the hell knows, but or it might have been if the talent had an idea that that happens too occasionally. So, uh, no issues. Uniqueness. It was different. We kept trying to reinvent and do things better, but also do things with a more unique touch. And this certainly was a unique touch.
0: Yeah, very unique. And Nash tells the story uh, that Brett didn't like the idea of taking a jackknife and her saving him as a finish because it made it look like he was about to get beat. And Undertaker supposedly said something like, Motherfucker, everything isn't about you. Do you remember hearing this story that maybe Brett and, and Taker had words before the finish here?
1: I never did, but it wouldn't surprise me that they had a man to man discussion. Uh, again, uh, Brett was very uh, defensive because of how he perceived he was being treated and communicated with by Vince and, the, and the, all the uh, higher ups. Uh, you know, Brett was not a glad hander. Brett was not a guy that would, you know, when he got to TV, the first thing he would do go to Vince's, uh, uh, office, make makeshift office in the, in the arena. Uh, you know, he, he, he always respected Vince. They always, but he was not a guy that, that, uh, really tried to gravitate to him and the big hugs and the attaboys and the pats on the back and all that stuff. He was all business. And I think this, the general perception for him was that uh, he didn't, he didn't want to be perceived as weak. But, uh, I, I had no problem with that. You know, the finish has been like done like that forever, where you, you know, if you know that he's getting ready to go to do this lonesome of thing, you've got to get other guys ready as well. And, uh, so I didn't think that that finish was a bad thing. I didn't think it made Brett look weak at all, but, uh, nonetheless, Brett thought that and that's all that really mattered.
0: Let's also mention that, um, Brett would write in his book about this. Uh, being saved by interference at two pay-per-views in a row did nothing to keep a babyface champion like me strong. And he would say later that day, he called the lonesome dove offices and the producer of the show, Steve North informed him the series had been canceled. And Brett says this news, of course, broke his heart. It's apparent that Brett wanted and maybe thought the next step for him was acting and maybe this is the big break and now it's seemingly taken away, but Even though the show was canceled, Brett decides to stick with this original plan and what he had told Vince, I'm going to take six months off after WrestleMania and the next night on raw, Brett said that he was happily surprised to see Roddy Piper at the Cincinnati gardens for raw. Piper's been made the new president of the WWF. And Brett said that Vince got him, Roddy and Sean together and carefully rehearsed the live interview. They were going to have to do that night to get us ready for WrestleMania. And Brett said when he went to the ring that night, Sean and Vince were already in the ring. And Brett said every word out of Sean's mouth had so much more impact than what he had been told to say. And Brett said Vince was right there to make sure Sean was humble, lovable, and not too Seanish, whatever that may
1: mean. During well, the year, Sean, uh, uh, e- ego, egocentric. Sure. You know, strong personality. You know, the same thing could be said that that Undertaker allegedly had words with the uh, Brett that we just mentioned. The same thing I'm sure Undertaker's had some conversations with Sean too over the years. That was just Taker's way, you know, uh he was a team guy, total team guy, as was Brett, but again, the outside pressures and seeing his relationship uh seemingly start to disintegrate with the with the with Vince was a major issue for Brett, which tells me that Brett had this great respect for Vince. Vince was his guy. He thought he was Vince's guy. And then, then there was a new kid on the block. There's a new kid in town as the Eagles would say.
0: Uh, no doubt about it. And that's what they're trying to get over here is, Hey, we've got a new sheriff in town for WrestleMania. And, um, during the interview, Sean brags about how well conditioned he was shows off his abs and Brett then compares himself to the uh, little pink bunny in the energizer battery commercials. But he just keeps going and going. And that's when Roddy explained the rules of the iron man match. And Brett says that while he was over in India sick with the shits, Sean had been home training like a lunatic and he would write in his book damned if he wasn't in incredible shape. Uh, and then we're off to the races after that. We've got uh, a couple of double shots on February 25th in Pittsburgh and Cleveland. Both times, Brett wins over the undertaker by count out and then in February, the company sends or late February, the company sends uh, cameras to Calgary to film Brett training for the iron man match. And they had already filmed Sean in San Antonio running stadium steps, doing upside down sit ups, pretending to spar with his mentor, Jose Lothario. And Brett said that Sean was selling or Vince was selling Sean as a guy trying to realize the boyhood dream of winning the gold. Meanwhile, Brett is portrayed as the wily veteran from the dungeon who had every intention of being the champion for a long time. Of course the trouble here in the shoot is it's the coldest time of the year in Calgary and they've got him running and trying to get panoramic views of the city. He says, I don't think JR and the camera crew were trying to be funny, but I couldn't help, but see the humor in the footage they shot. It was so icy that I had to run carefully. So it came across on film. Like I was running a mile an hour.
1: (laughs) Yeah, it was colder than hell. I can tell you that. Yeah, I had nothing to do with the weather. I couldn't have controlled that. But it was one of my, it was one of the fun trips I took, you know, uh, and, and did one of the fun assignments I took should say, uh, and we, we wanted to show all phases of an athlete training and that would include some road work, but obviously those clips are short, uh, but it did get him outside. It did show him running and that's kind of all we wanted to do. We didn't need a lot of running. But we just needed to show a little running the same thing. Uh, well, you will talk about the, uh, you know, I wanted him to swim in his indoor pit, Brett had an indoor pool at his home. And, uh, so we, we set all of it up. Then I come to find out, well, Brett can't swim. Oh, so we did that in an abbreviated form. So we just showed some very short, succinct clips of Brett, uh, swimming again to all all it was done, Conrad was to improve cardio, right? You're going to go an hour. You got to work on your cardio. You're not worried about how much bigger your arms are going to be. How much more you can bench press all these things. Cardio was the name of the game for a 16 minute Ironman match. And all we wanted to do was to uh, illustrate the things Brett was doing to improve his cardio. And the swimming was one thing and the running was another. So, uh, and then of course we ended up putting Brett in the dungeon with too.
0: I'm glad you mentioned that because Brett would say the topper was when they filmed Stu stretching me in the dungeon and an 80 year old man tying me up in knots with me eagerly tapping out. And it is kind of funny when you look back at this. I mean, the footage of Sean training looks like it's out of a Rocky Balboa montage and then, well, Brett's isn't
1: mm-hmm. well, uh, I'm drinking my coffee here this morning, um, uh, uh, yeah. I, I it, it, the Sean wasn't Brett knew the finish. He knew what was going on. Uh, uh, kinda is I, what it I, is. what's that?
0: It kind of is what it is.
1: Yeah, it is what it is. And, uh, uh, but it wasn't the most advantageous time to go do outdoor things in Calgary. I get that too, but that wasn't my call. I just did what I did and went and did my job. And, and, uh, the thing about Stu, to be honest with you, at least in my recollection Conrad, Stu kind of went into business for himself. He wasn't involved. He wasn't in, interested in the, the, uh, work aspect of pro wrestling. He was a shooter mentality, old school, hard ass, tough guy that would beat your ass wrestling and beat your ass, uh, with submissions. And I think that the idea was uh, when we were doing this is that we wanted Stu to demonstrate some unique submission ways to earn a submission or to debilitate uh, his opponent. Then Stu got a little carried away. Uh, and, uh, you know, he took it a little over the edge, so it was never was designed to make Brett look weak. It was designed to make Brett look like he was going to his father, the patriarch of the, of the Hart family to show him new submissions that he might be able to utilize in this matchup. Let's,
0: uh. Let's give you a, a, a sort of a peek into the mind of Bret Hart. He writes of this match that he had been training as hard as he had for this as anything else. He said, quote, Sean was eight years younger than me, and I wasn't going to let him outshine me. Like me and Davey at Wembley, I wanted the fans to remember the loser. I saw a match up ahead with me taking back the title, which would build up for yet one more match where I'd be more than happy to put Sean over to once and for all thrust the torch into his hand done right sean and i could draw money for years with a big rivalry taking turns putting each other over doesn't everyone sort of assume that that's the plan when you head into wrestlemania 12 that this is our new great rivalry maybe like macho man and hulk hogan before or from your side of, of, of things maybe it was the new it could be the new rick flair ricky steamboat
1: yeah. Or, uh, the Muhammad Ali, Joe Frazier. There are a lot of illustrations there, uh, that we could utilize, but yeah, that was the deal, uh, because you got two great stars that had really the contrary at, at that time, they didn't have great chemistry outside the ring, but I always thought that, uh, Brett and Sean complimented the hell out of each other. Uh, I, I enjoyed their matches. I enjoyed their interactions. So, but that was the, that was obviously the thought, this is not going to be a one-off. You we're building this amazing rivalry that we can revisit uh just about any time with a proper reintroduction.
0: Let's uh let's keep it moving and run you through what he's doing as we get into March. On March third, he beats the Bulldog uh in Springfield Mass. Later in the show, Brett would beat Sean in a lumberjack match. The next day in Providence, same thing. On March fifth, we would see uh Brett beat Sean in a lumberjack in Austin, Texas. On the 11th, they're in San Antonio for a television taping, Brett would beat Tatanka, and then later Brett would beat the Undertaker by countout. In Hartford four days later, Undertaker would team with Brett to take on Sean and Diesel, which is a little interesting. Uh, and then in Landover this is of note, this is March 16th. And as far as I know, this is the first triple threat match in WWF history. And the first three opponents, Brett, Undertaker and Diesel. Do you remember this when they started doing triple threat matches? I mean, this is, uh, as far as I know, a bit of an innovation for the company. I mean, not to say it hadn't happened before, certainly ECW had been doing them, but I think this is the first triple threat in WWF history. what do you think of the concept?
1: I loved it. and I booked it a lot when I was booking house shows because we had, uh, several talents that, uh, you could, uh, feasibly see in a title situation. You could feasibly see in a three-way match uh, we, you know, that was a nice problem to have, uh, to, a, to be able to add another star to that already, uh, you know, uh, combustible, uh, you know, feuds and rivalries that we had. Uh, but, uh, I, I had, I liked it. And I, and like I said, if you go back and look at some of my booking uh, over the years. Uh, I, I did that in a lot of house shows, uh, three ways. Uh, I, I liked the three way with where it was an elimination three way better than the first guy to get a fall because the only negative about a three way, when you say, well, the first guy to score pin or submission wins, that means that the reigning champion, the guy that's a champion entering the match has no championship advantage. Uh, so some, he doesn't, that person, the champion doesn't even have to be involved in the decision to lose the title. And that was one thing about the triple threat matches structured in the sudden death, first got to get a fall or submission wins it, uh, that I probably didn't, That I didn't really, uh, uh, embrace, but it was what it was in that respect, but, uh, I, I liked the three ways it was a f- for a house show. Conrad, it's a lot of star power in your main event. Yeah, it is. So I think that was the deal. You know, it just, it, 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 it checked more boxes than it didn't. But the, the, the negative, negative of it for me was that the champion did not have to be involved. And he said, well, I put the champion in jeopardy. I get all those things. I call those matches. I understand that, but still, uh, it didn't make a lot of common sense, uh, but it is pro wrestling. And sometimes pro wrestling has been known to do things. that just didn't make a lot of common sense.
0: Well, I'll tell you what does make a lot of sense. March 17th, Madison square garden, Brett and undertaker on one side, Sean and diesel on the other. Diesel would hit Sean with a chair after the match, which explains how You know, they're teaming up a good guy with a bad guy, but Meltzer were right of this March 17th show, the Bret Hart undertaker, Sean and diesel match on March 17th drew the first sellout at Madison square garden for a non pay-per-view event in so many years, nobody can remember the last one. It also set an all time record house show gate. How big of a deal is this to Vince to finally sell out MSG again, after all those years in the muck of 93 and 94 and 95. And it happens right before WrestleMania 12. This has to give a lot of excitement heading into the biggest show of the year. Does it not?
1: Yeah. Because there's, we saw an interest, uh, for to sell out the garden, which is not automatic, especially uh, for a house show without TV cameras, there and a pay-per-view or a raw or whatever it was, was very encouraging. There was great interest uh, in these individuals and their quest for one. All of them had one goal to be the champion. And I, I like that aspect of it. So uh, you know, I remember it very well. You know, Vince always stood behind the curtain during that short entrance, uh, watching the uh, matches. And his dad stood in the same place, I'm told. You know, Arnie Scholin used to tell me those stories that you know Vince's dad uh, would sit, sit there and he had this uh, this ho- ho- hobby or not hobby, a habit, whatever you want to say. He'd have a coin, like a quarter or a half a dollar, something like that, in his hand, and he'd be flipping that that money just rolling his thumb and the money in his hand as kind of, I guess, a little nervous thing, uh, it beats smoking, (laughs) I guess. So, uh, uh, it was important for Vince. The garden will always be Vince McMahon's utopia, Madison square garden, no matter if they run the Barclay center or whatever, uh, if all the wounds would heal and all the deals are right. Financially, the garden would always be the, the Mecca of a WWE event in Vince McMahon's eyes.
0: Let's, uh, let's keep it moving here. The company now has some momentum and they're starting to promote the main event, uh, for the biggest, greatest WrestleMania in history, the greatest athletic match of all time. Uh, do you think promoting the greatest athletic match in history, et cetera, et cetera, is that going to lead to disappointment anytime you say You know, this is one of the greatest matches ever. I mean, this is sort of timely because WWE just did this with edge and Randy Orton, and it sets an expectation that it's almost impossible to live up to. Is it not?
1: It is impossible to live up to because what criteria are you basing it on? Right. The greatest match of all time based on what criteria? Well, there's no criteria. It's just the fact that it's a great tagline. It's a great marketing phrase, uh, gather and garner more interest. Uh so uh, yeah I, I hey look I watched uh, Edge and uh, and Randy uh their match I signed both guys I signed them when they had, they didn't they didn't have jobs uh oh, well Edge and Christian were working indies in Ontario uh but they weren't making any money by any stretch uh and of course um uh, you know I I just I I just uh, I don't know I I it's just hard to live up to it and again it, it became really a marketing thing in this last greatest match in, in history greatest match of all time, because I've always wondered, what do you base that on? That's like somebody asking you Conrad, well, Conrad, who's the greatest baby face of all time. Okay. So that's a question that wouldn't pass a court. That wouldn't pass a judgment with a, with a, in a court case, you have to be more specific. Is it, you know, what, what is the criteria that we're talking about? If it's just your personal favorite, that's one thing. But if you're going to say it's the greatest match of all time on a big scale, you gotta give some background. I think there's gotta be some criteria there. So uh, it's it's you're right about the thing. You can never live up to the expectations on something that is that valuehood and marketed in that way. It's impossible. But I will take my hat off. I'm very proud of those two cats I signed and how how they've matured over the years and made themselves a lot of money. And both you know Ed's already in the Hall of Fame. Randy's a no brainer. So uh, it, it but it's tough. It's it's tough right there. Quite frankly.
0: It is tough and we should mention that, uh, at the time of this, uh, Brett is 38 Sean is 30 and don't get me wrong. Brett had had a lot of long matches with flair and Owen and, and Sean had had a lot of long tag matches, but this is going to be another level. And a week before the big match, Brett goes on the Czech Copic sports talk show and said, if he loses this match, he's going to consider retiring. Is this another wrinkle for Vince to add to the promotion? It feels like Vince really loves this idea, especially around WrestleMania. He did it with Hogan around WrestleMania eight. So four years later, he's going to tease. Hey, if I don't win, I might retire.
1: Yeah. Good wrinkle. Another good log on the fire to keep building that blaze. And then that, uh, you know, the heat, no pun intended from the fire. Uh, nice. I thought it was good it, to me, Brett. I don't think Brett had any. I had any thought seriously of retiring, but it sounded good and it was feasible. It was feasible. He'd had a long career. He had a great run as champion. What more, what other mountains can I climb that I haven't already. So I thought it was a nice wrinkle as you put it, uh, to add to this, uh, storyline. Let's,
0: uh, let's also discuss the. Bill Watts aspect of this Meltzer has freestyled that perhaps one of the reasons Vince may have favored Sean so much here is because of Bill Watts. And we've often heard that someone can pitch Vince, a guy too much, and it just turns Vince off to the person completely. And supposedly Bill Watts was pushing for Brett to be the long-term champion. Watts had just had a falling out with Vince. He's gone from the company and the rumor and innuendo is that one of the big sticking points with Bill Watts was the Brett and Sean disagreement. What really happened with regard to Bill Watts and Brett and Sean here?
1: Well, I don't know that the Brett and Sean thing was a, a major, uh, uh, issue for Watts leaving. It contributed to the overall malaise that he had that, uh, you know, Vince was not listening to him and not doing what he brought. Vince brought Bill in to do. And that was to give him booking advice and, and help with direction and things like that. If, but bill didn't like his role. Bill wanted to be the guy that he was in UWF that he was in uh mid South. Certainly the, 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 final decision maker. And as long as Vince McMahon is alive, there'll be no other final decision maker, but Vince McMahon period. Uh, you can look at Jerry Jones, the Dallas Cowboys, as long as he's alive, he's going to run the Cowboys the way he sees fit because it's his team. And Vince has a lot of the same characteristics in that regard of a strong willed Jerry Jones. So, uh, but I think Vince, or excuse me, I think bill was just not a good cultural fit there, Conrad. I spent time with him, you know, uh, he, we didn't spend every night together or, or, you know, having dinner, this, that, and the other, but bill was not over. Bill had was uncomfortable living in Connecticut. Uh, you know, uh, he, he just, it was not a good fit. Uh, I think Vince being uh, bill being rather a consultant. Outside consultant, watching all the shows, having weekly conference calls with Vince talking, having little booking conference calls would have been a whole lot better than him, uh, living in Connecticut and cowboy didn't get along with Lisa Wolf, the HR lady. Uh, you know, she didn't understand his abruptness. I remember her telling Bruce is right. told this story. She said one time after bill left, nobody's ever talked to me like that. It's just my father. So, uh, but that's just cowboy. you know what you're going to bill was not a surprise. What he got there, he didn't act differently than you thought he was going to. He, he simply was just being cowboy. And some folks could not understand that or, 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 you know, uh, go along with it, he was very abrasive at times, quite frankly, the big cowboy. So, but Bill loved Bret Hart's work. I'll tell you that, but who didn't love Bret Hart's work? Yeah. It's not a matter of you love Brett more than you love Sean It's the fact you get a 30 year old kid who's at the top of his game, who's in the Ric Flair category as far as working. And you know that at 30, he's just going to get better and better, uh, as a, as a performer maturing and things of that nature. So, uh, I don't, I don't know if that was that one match was the the straw that broke the camel's back, but I know it was a contributing factor simply because Vince was not taking Bill's advice to leave the the championship on Brett, which I found to be somewhat ironic because it was Bill Watts who hired Sean, his first job on the recommendation of Jose Lothario. In uh, in mid South and he would, he, he made sure bill did that, uh, Sean was traveling with the rock and roll express to learn the business, uh, to feel what it's like to be a baby face and not a giant baby face and understand the concepts and the philosophies thereof. So Bill was a big proponent of Sean. So to him, it wasn't a popularity deal. He just felt like Brett was the guy that could have matches as a rugged baby face, a wrestling heel whatever, and, and enhance anybody that he, that he got in the ring with. So I, that's, that's how I look at that. Now, I might be wrong on that deal. You know, Bruce would know more about that than me as far as the, uh, that stuff was concerned, but I was very involved, but, uh, I, I was, it, it's hard to say, it's hard to say, but I think Cowboy was, Cowboy didn't get the role that he thought he was going to get and it, 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 it bothered him.
0: Let's talk about something Meltzer wrote here that I think makes a lot of sense. WWF business is the strongest it's been in years, and there's a theory that you don't change champions when business is making a turnaround. The argument continues when it comes to this business turnaround. Supporters of Brett will point out that virtually all these shows where business has picked up, it was Brett, not Sean, that was in the headline or drawing position on the cards, and that a turnaround can be pointed to just a few weeks after brett picked up the title from diesel supporters of sean can point that you can trace a significant upswing in attendance and buy rates directly to the period starting with the royal rumble when michaels returned from his quote-unquote career ending injury angle and that his return was a prime factor not the heart undertaker match and the shockingly good buy rate of that show while sean was gone the buy rate for the december pay-per-view with brett versus davey boy was the lowest in the history of the promotion in most arenas. Michael's has been some of the best reactions of anyone on the show. It seems like there's a a bit of a split decision here in the theories. Uh, where did you land on this? Was it time to put the belt on Sean? Or did you think, man, with that big sellout at MSG, maybe we should keep the belt on Brad a little more.
1: Oh man. That's a tough question. You know, it's history is going to speak for what it was. Uh, I'm in a position here to answer this question that there really wasn't a wrong answer. Right now. I'm sure some people can overthink it and oh no, here's the deal. And here's all the evidence. And here's what I think. And, and everybody's got to, that's their, their opinion. I, I respect people's opinion. Uh, unlike a lot of folks on Twitter and social media, that if you disagree with them, you're a piece of shit. Uh, which is really sad. Uh, but I didn't know that there was a bad decision in this deal. You know, it's a matter of how is it going to affect overall business and how's it going to affect the locker room? Uh, things you have to think about. So, uh, but, but I, I Sean coming back was, look, he has been there a long time. He is established. Uh, he, he was obviously, as I said earlier, uh, one of the best ever, you know, I, I said, if I put anybody in Ric Flair's category, that's high praise. Right. I've never put anybody in Ric Flair's category for longevity and uh baby face heel, the whole, all those little, uh, things that you would consider. Uh, but Sean, Sean and, and Rick are my top two, uh, just personal. So, uh, I don't think there's a bad answer there. It's a matter of how do you do this and make sure your both your talents are, are motivated. And, uh, they're somewhat happy because unhappy main eventers can be a cancer in the locker room mm. because main event guys carry more clout. They have more clout, uh, and they're on top for a reason. One would think. So if they're pissed off or they're unhappy, then they must be right. So that was kind of the issue there. How do you handle all the personalities? And let's don't forget either, uh, Brett had his share of, of, uh, supporters. A lot of them in the locker room, guys like Brett, he was unassuming. He was easy to talk to. And Sean was younger, brash, cocky, and Vince saw a little bit of himself. I've heard this, him say this in Sean Michaels. The attitude, you know, uh, the confidence, all those things, uh, self-confidence, uh, was something that, uh, Vince, Vince kind of identified with Sean. So, but again, the bottom line, there's no wrong answer uh, on that. Cause both guys are going to be great champions and, and, and you knew that the match is going to be extraordinary.
0: Let's, uh, let's mention too, that we've still got to do all our WrestleMania promotion. And Brett does Regis and Kathy Lee on March 26th to promote WrestleMania Regis and Kathy Lee were always, uh, a great ally to the world wrestling federation. How did Brett do in this role of WWF brand ambassador,
1: if you will? Well, Freddie Blassie was the link between, uh, WWE and, uh, Regis. Cause Freddie was a guest of uh, Regis local TV show back out in California for uh, all those years and uh, on many occasions, one of Regis favorite guests, Freddie was a gosh almighty, what a talker and personality. And, but, uh, so that helped bond that helped solidify that relationship. I thought Brett was a great brand ambassador amb- ambassador because, uh, he was real, he was genuine. He wasn't playing the, the, he wasn't playing the role of somebody that he wasn't, his name was Brett Hart. He was real. He believed in his realness, which is great. And so he, I thought he was a good, he's always, uh, the only thing about Brett, sometimes he had a little trouble telling time being on time. I remember that we talked about that dungeon thing with him and Stu. He was like an hour too late. So guess what? Stu gets restless at the, at the, at the breakfast table and brother, when you talk about a breakfast table, it looked like the table in that, uh, uh, and the religious thing, where all the disciples were sitting at the table, the huge long table. That's what we were sitting at by ourselves. And he got restless. Did Stu waiting on Brett? And uh, let's, uh, let's go down in the dungeon. I'll show you a couple <laughs> of things. And I'm thinking to myself, you got to be shitting me. So I knew what he wanted to do. He, I think, it was interested in me pissing my pants from some some hole. So he gets me down there. And we, uh, thank God the cameras weren't rolling. So I knew he said, if I, uh, if I hurt you, just, uh, just give me the office. Meaning I'll squeeze his wrist or screw, you know, whatever I can grab the squeeze and so I, I uh, to say I was quick on the squeezing would be an understatement, <laughs> but it was, it was, you know, just an interesting, interesting day for me because I, of all the famous guys that were actually athletes, unlike me. That were in that dungeon that had been tortured and, uh, that he had seen how bad you want to be a pro wrestler. We're going to find out today type deal. Cause I'm going to hurt your ass. So the question is, will will you be back tomorrow or next week or whatever the case may be? So, uh, but Brett was real. He, he had that, he had, he, that was in, that was just in his psyche. He learned this way. He grew up in this environment. He was a former amateur wrestler, you know, but he was too son. son. And Stewart's son Brett was destined to be a modified, upgraded version of these fundamentally sound. I will beat your ass any way I can, including a submission, because he used a sharpshooter submission hold. So uh, it was a. It, I, I thought Brett did a great job there with those shows. Oh, those the PR mission. She looked good, uh, great smile, polite, happy to be there type thing. And any TV host that you, you know, when you're a TV guy and you're interviewing somebody from the outside, and I've done uh, hundreds of these that you, w- when the guy is genuinely excited that you're talking to him about this subject, it makes everything so much easier and it's such better television. And I always thought Brett did good TV. Was he flamboyant? Was he over the top? Did he, you know, no, but he was real. And I think that came across on television very prominently.
0: We should mention that, uh. Meltzer takes note of something that I think is worth discussing. He writes the Ironman match in a sense shows 180 degree change in the WWS philosophy from the first WrestleMania back in 85 to in 1996. The company is putting arguably it's two best in-ring performers and putting them in the situation to have a classic match. This is a shift. You know, you go back and you look and it's always Hulk Hogan and somebody. And then we tried to have a bit of a departure with 10. We made Brett, but. We've still got Yokozuna and Lex Luger in the mix. And then we fast forward to 11 and we're going celebrity. We're going bam, bam, Bigelow and, and Lawrence Taylor, but now at 12, really you've arguably got two of the very best wrestlers in the world. And we're giving them an hour to do their thing. This is a lot less to use a JR saying or expression, a lot less sizzle, a lot more steak. Was Vince nervous about the shift? I mean, he's always been King sizzle.
1: Yeah. He's he was a little, uh, uncertain how it was going to work out. But going back to that, you you, you always know that they're going to have Brett and Sean are going to have a great match. And that's at the end of the day, that's the obligation of any promoter of any company is to create, uh, matches that the fans are going to enjoy because of their application from bell to bell, you obviously got to get a good buildup. You got to tell a good story. You got to get us to the water and then the horse is supposed to drink when it gets there. Uh, so I, I, I think Vince is probably a little bit, uh, uneasy, uncertain. Cause how do we, how is our, again, as I said earlier, how is our audience going to, uh, react to 60 minutes guaranteed 60 minutes. So, uh, yeah, I think so. But again, the, the solace. Was the fact that you knew at the end of the day, those two sons of are going to have a hell of a wrestling match, and the fans are going to enjoy it?
0: We uh, we know that Brett and Sean have been good friends for a few years prior to this, showing and even been to Brett's house. Going into WrestleMania 12, Brett says they're still friends, but not as much as before. Brett feels in this era they started to become in direct competition for the top spot, or at least the top babyface role. Do you remember seeing their relationship change as we got closer to WrestleMania 12?
1: Yeah. it came a little bit more distant. Uh, Brett was more cautious. I think, uh, I think Brett probably at that time probably didn't fully trust Sean's motivation, Uh, but I could tell that there was a little bit of a, they weren't hanging around at TV together. They, as you know, they didn't, you didn't see them sitting at catering that many times and having lunch together. Not there wasn't hate. There wasn't animosity. It just was cautiousness on Brett's part. Cause Sean knew his course, Sean had been told where we're going. So he had a little bit of, I don't say bulletproof feel, but he had great confidence of where the, the destination that was ahead. So, but I did, I could detect the fact that they were a little bit distant, but not so, uh, uh, negatively that they weren't going to have a good match and not have cooperation. They're too good of pros are two great professionals. They're not going to go out and embarrass themselves. That's what I always come back to Vince was said, Vince. You got two guys here that are amazingly talented. As you know, they both have, uh, ample sized egos. They're not going to have a bad presentation. Their egos, their skill sets, their mindsets will not allow it. And I hope that helped a little bit because obviously we went ahead and did it. And, uh, and I thought it worked out fine.
0: Let's, uh, let's get to the match. It's March 31st, Anaheim, California. Brett said earlier in the day of WrestleMania, he found Sean at lunchtime and they sat down and planned out the match. Brett let Sean piece out the first 25 minutes. And then Brett did the rest. He said, all told, they sat for three hours, planning everything out. And Brett told him I'll expect to be working a rematch when I come back in six months and, um. Brett said that Sean spent much of the morning planning a special entrance being lowered to the ring by a steel cable. And Brett would write, I was impressed by how focused he was. He says as WrestleMania goes on, many of the boys with tears in their eyes found him to thank him as was custom in this era. When the belt's about to change hands, if he carried the belt with dignity and work hard, was that always a tradition? Uh, And when do you remember this being the last time that it happened, that guys would come by and thank the former champion when he's dropping the title? It doesn't seem like something that happens these days, maybe from a more bygone era.
1: Yeah, it was from a bygone era when things were a little bit more, uh, traditional, uh, and I often wonder today how much a championship actually means to current wrestling talent, because there's, they don't get a chance to get uh, comfortable in their role that often the short, uh, tenure, of some of the championships, I think lessens the importance of the title and titles change indiscriminately and much too often. So, but back in the old days, uh, that was not the case, uh, frequent title changes or what you wanted to always promote as a lot live events. You know, people bought tickets to see Ric Flair on the road as the NWA champion, because they hope that their guy in their territory. Would, 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 have the upset of the decade and, and their guy would become the NWA champion. So they were paying money to see flair lose. Uh, if, and and I say that respectfully to Rick, I mean, he, Rick knew his role, so Rick would always go in there and make these guys look better than they were come within a hair, you know, hogs, breath, a eyelash, whatever cliche you want to use of using, of, of losing the title, but somehow or another through DQs, count outs, whatever. Uh, he always retained in that respect. So the local guy never beat flair, but that was what they sold tickets on the the promise or the prospect of that happening. So, uh, I'm sure Pat Patterson had a big hand in that, you know, Pat was a big fan of Sean and Brett, quite frankly, both guys, Pat really loved those guys for different reasons. Pat was a sizzle guy himself, even though a great wrestler, But Pat, you know, did a lot of things that were unique and new in his era. Uh, as far as his style and and bumps, he took things of that nature. Patterson was a great bump taker. Shawn Michaels is a great bump taker, but he also loved the stability of Brett. And when you got a talent like Patterson, looking at Brett, so, uh, with such reverent terms, it's because Pat knew that in another era, that if he was going to wrestle Bret Hart, that he knew one thing, no matter what the finish is going to be, that the match is going to be tremendous. And, and, and again. I go back to this, Iron uh, Ironman match. I didn't call that match, but I watched every second of it. And, uh, I had a little dog in a hunt because I did the videos for Brett his, his training videos and I was a big fan of both guys work. And I was curious to see how they're going to pull off a 60 minute match in Los Angeles, uh, early in the afternoon, because <clears throat> of the time difference, uh, how that was all going to work out. So, uh, but Patterson, I'm sure had a hand in keeping peace in the valley to some degree. Uh, and keep the guys focused on their task at hand. And if they sat together for three hours, you knew that both guys' head was in the game and Patterson was only there to keep the rudder in the water and keep them sailing in the right direction.
0: Of course the match is uh well some would say a masterpiece. Others have a different take. Sean beats Brett in overtime, one fall to zero. They go sixty one minutes and fifty two seconds. So they go just over the limit here to win the world title in a historic Iron Man match. Uh, Meltzer would write, Michaels did a flying hurricane run off the middle ropes, but it was messed up. He went for a drop kick off the top, but Hart caught his legs and got him in the sharpshooter with 34 seconds left. Michaels held out until the end without submitting. Hart left with the belt, but Gorilla Monsoon tells the ref to restart the match with a sudden death stipulation which had never previously been advertised.
1: That was a mistake. By the way, we should have advertised that eventuality. In the case of this match going a time limit draw, the match will continue with an untimed overtime period, and the first man to uh, score that pinfall is going to leave as the champ. We didn't. Exp- that was not explained well, and I think that was a mistake. Looking back at it in hindsight,
0: were right? The pop for that announcement was shockingly tepid. In the overtime, Michaels immediately hit two super kicks and got the pin in a minute and 52 seconds and celebrated in the ring for several minutes afterwards, nearly choking up. In the celebration, Michaels did a kin Shamrock by kissing Helen Hart and hugging Brett's son, Blade. Brett walked out of the ring at the finish. Rather than doing a symbolic in-ring passing of the torch, he gave it four and a quarter stars. What'd you think of the match? Did you uh, agree with Meltzer's assessment? Four and a quarter? Where would you rank it?
1: Oh, right there. It was a, it was a hell of a match. I enjoyed it, but I enjoy pro wrestling. Right. I enjoy watching guys wrestle and not try to cram, uh, you know, three pounds of shit in a, in a two pound bag. Right. They had time. They had, they, 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 took their time. They told a great story. Uh, you know, I would have, that's probably all the matches that I did not call. Uh, the two things that come to my mind are Mick Bowley's first title win. And I was off with Bell's palsy. Uh, when, T- when Foley won his first championship, I'd love to call that, and I would love to call this match. but I think it fit my skill set better than it fit Vince's skill set, quite frankly.
0: Let's mention that Brett wrote about this. He says, "With five minutes remaining, I hoisted him up like a sack of cement and snapped him across my knee. I smiled at the time clock. I told Sean the last five minutes were all his, and we were right on schedule. I leaped off the second rope only to be jolted by a vicious stiff boot to the jaw from Sean. Then one potato after another, he took every Liberty. He could stiffing me on drop kicks and elbow smashes. Even so we both knew the match was a masterpiece. This had been a beautiful movie to watch, especially since the crowd loved us both by the end of it, it was probably the greatest match I ever had or close. Anyway, I squeezed Sean's wrist to give him the cue that we were going home. And this ending the better man would lose. After the match was over, uh Brett said I couldn't believe my ears when I heard Sean angrily tell Earl, tell him to get the fuck out of the ring. This is my moment. I had firmly placed the torch in that little monster's hands, but I also knew that no one was going to forget about me. With my head held high, I walked to my waiting Lincoln and burned rubber up the ramp as the credits rolled. Well, wow.
1: Man didn't know, is, I didn't know that.
0: <laughs> yeah, I mean you go back and, and there is footage. Uh, that you can actually see, uh, so Sean says something to that effect, but the gist is the F bomb and get out of my ring.
1: Yeah. And
0: yeah. something that I don't think a lot of people really paid attention to at the time is in that last five minutes, Brett's accusing Sean of taking some liberties and, and throwing some potatoes. Uh, overall, when it's said and done, what do you remember were, were Pat and Vince, everybody pleased with the match?
1: I think so. I think so. Uh, no one was happy that Brett was so, uh, distressed. Certainly Sean, uh, saying what he said, uh, to Earl Hebner, the referee, uh, was uncalled for. It was immature. Uh, and it didn't show the respect of the guy that just <clears throat> put the title on you. Uh, I didn't like that part of it. Now that I'm reading about it and, and hearing about it, Un- Unnecessary. It just showed, you know, Sean was a very, again, like we said earlier, 30 years old, man, top of the world, got a great, he's got that attitude and you can either love and embrace that attitude that I'm the best ever. Uh, and I'm going to, and I'm the right guy for this, this role. I am going to bring sizzle what well, Bret Hart. Didn't in Sean's view. Uh, so it didn't shock me to hear this. It doesn't shock me to hear this, but it's still disconcerting that, uh, it was very ill-timed. And the sensitivities of Brett. Brett. Brett took great pride in being the top guy. You know, all those years he worked in a, in tag teams with with Jim the Anvil, and uh, all those things. His years toiling in the territory in Calgary. He finally became the top guy in the top territory, the top company in the entire world. And so he took pride in that. And so to be disrespected at his most uh, uh, sensitive uh, moment. Uh, was very, very uh, ill-timed on Sean's part. So, and it's, it's not good to hear that. I'm glad uh, it's just Sean's lucky that if he's throwing those potatoes as Brett wrote in his book, which I have no reason to, to doubt, he's just very lucky that Brett didn't retaliate. And because Sean could not handle Brett in that, in that, in that type of world. So it showed great character and integrity by Brett Hart to not lose his cool when he's getting stiffed.
0: We should mention that this is where the lines start to get blurred because like we talked about after the match, Brett left the ring without shaking Sean's hand, he basically walked right out of the arena, but he, and he, he
1: told him he was good, but Sean, sorry, Conor, but Brett told Sean in that three hour, three hour meeting, what he was going to do. That's exactly right. I'm not right. going to shake your hand.
0: They planned it that way. They're basically wanting to work everyone, including the boys. And many of the boys felt like Brett leaving the way he did in his gear into a Lincoln right after was a shoot. And there had to be some sort of real life heat between them, some sort of hatred. And Brett said the next day at raw, Owen would call him from the building and tell Brett, everyone thinks there's so much heat between you and Sean, because you wouldn't shake his hand. And Brett writes that he told Owen something like that's the best thing in the world and keep everyone thinking that. Um, so, we're trying to quote unquote work the boys. Are you in favor of that?
1: No problem, because the boys have big mouths, right? And they like to add things. And they like to embellish and add stuff that's not even factual. Uh, it keeps everybody guessing. It's what the business was was built on over the over the course of time. Uh, the uncertainty. Uh, you know, I remember when I got in the business, and Bill Watts finally smartened me up after I'd already refereed several matches. I wasn't even smart to the business when I started refereeing because. They wanted to make sure I was going to stick around for a while and here 40 something years later, I, I didn't disappoint them. I did stick around a while. Uh, but yeah, it was, uh, it's what you wanted. You wanted to boys. I, I asked the point about Watts. I said, well, aren't the title matches real? And he laughed in my face. He said, no, that's the day he told me the most powerful weapon in wrestling was the eraser. <laughs> Well,
0: I tell you, Brett feels like when he comes back and and they eventually have the return match, it's going to be red hot. In other words, if the boys believe, then the fans would definitely believe it. And the first observer after WrestleMania 12 Meltzer would write after the Germany tour, which ends on April 22nd and the possible exception of a week of May bookings in Kuwait, Hart is expected to go on hiatus until at least the end of the summer. There's always been a lot of talk of Sean versus Brett at SummerSlam, perhaps in a ladder match. There's also been talk that Brett may not return that quickly or even at all. Uh, but this tour of, uh, Europe is coming up here. They're going to have shots on the seventh, 10th, 11th, 12th, 13th, and 14th all over Germany. The first one though, April 7th is notable because this is the first time Brett Hart would wrestle Steve Austin, their very first match ever. Of course, Brett picks up the win, and then he spends the rest of the tour working with Owen, triple H Austin and bulldog. And he does an interview on the April 15th, raw from Germany.
1: Lawrence. I want to add something here. Look at who we booked him with. All, everybody that we booked Brett with Owen, Davey boy, stone cold, uh, triple H were guys that, uh, Brett wanted to work with. He, especially, well, I remember very vividly. I hope that when we go to, uh, Europe, I get some matches with Austin and we listened and right. we thought that was also a good idea. When you got two guys that are willing to work together and they want to work together because we knew that Brett had a great respect for Austin and his fundamental soundness, uh, Brett had high expectations for Steve, maybe before most guys in the company did. So, uh, just looking at that list of talents that, uh, that Brett worked with in Germany, uh, was handpicked and it helped every, it helped Owen. It helped Steve. It helped triple H, uh, helped Davey. It was all as a win-win. So we took care of Brett's booking. Again, that was a show of respect from our side that, you know, let's, let's have him work with the guys that he wants to, to anoint as being better and help them get up the ladder just a little bit quicker.
0: As we said on, uh, the April 15th raw, Brett's doing an interview from Germany and he's basically saying other wrestling companies are are throwing money around a lot of money around. And he's basically portraying the guys who did leave like diesel and razor as being greedy. And the WWF is telling Meltzer. It's not a question of whether or not Hart will return only when, uh, let's continue though, to mention that he's not done. He's still got dates on the 20th and the 22nd. Uh, again, both of these in the UK or in Germany, rather, Brett over Helmsley, Brett over Austin fast forward to may. And this is where we see the Kuwaiti tournament where Brett would beat leaf Cassidy, AKA Al snow in the tournament. Owen would then later beat Brett clean in the tournament. Of course we know Ahmed Johnson would go on to become the Kuwaiti tournament champion. Uh, but on the 11th and 12th, he's again, working with his old pals, the bulldog. And then the next day he's teaming with the undertaker to take on Owen and the bulldog But come June. He's done. And in early June, uh, he is, uh, home when a documentary filmmaker named Paul Jay tells Brett that he wants to make a film about him and his life. And then he would drive to meet him at the, at a film festival. Of course we know this is going to become wrestling with shadows. When did you first hear about wrestling with shadows? Jim, do you recall? Uh,
1: not really Conrad, but it came to obviously the front of mind awareness, uh, uh, coming into Montreal in 97. So, uh, uh, uh you know, it was just, uh, just a, uh, you know, it was, it was a, it was a, it's like talking like right now I have people in, uh, it with, uh, with Viacom that are interested <clears throat> in taking uh, under the black hat and doing something with it, which is what Simon Schuster does with all their books is they have an arm because they're all owned by Viacom, CBS, uh, you know Paramount, all that stuff. So we have interest right now in under the black hat as some sort of uh, television or theatrical something. now am I excited about it? Of course, I'm excited about it, but it's far, far, far from a done deal. So my point in saying this is that when you hear about these documentaries and these these uh, uh, projected uh, uh, taping and the release and the content, you kind of take it with a grain of salt until you hear until it's more solidified. And quite frankly, until I saw cameras, uh, in Montreal and, uh, at survivor series, it, it, I never took it seriously. To be honest with you, it was another concept, another idea that a wrestler was being pitched that may or may not happen. And that's kind of like my situation. It may or may not happen. We'll see. But nonetheless, uh, it was not a, big deal, or we didn't talk about every day. What about, uh, you know, uh, wrestling with shadows and all that stuff. It just wasn't, it was a concept that was being pitched that we never were quite sure, uh, would it reach its fruition uh, or not?
0: Brett also says that he goes to Vince's house in this era and tells him that he sees himself coming back eventually, but he'd like to come back with a chip on his shoulder after losing the Sean. And Brett suggests the way they work a rematch would be where Brett would narrowly regain the title in another epic babyface contest, which would then set up a third match where Brett would put Sean over clean, but this time he'd shake his hand and endorse him. And he writes that Vince and Jr. both liked the idea. Do you remember this meeting?
1: Yeah, yeah. Uh, it, look, it's, it's classic storytelling. It's classic storytelling, and the the challenge is always going to be with Sean in that, in that era of his life, how, how is, uh, how is he going to, uh, respond? How is he going to react? Because Sean could be very reactionary and he could, and he influenced a lot of guys on the roster, uh, sometimes not positively. And sometimes, uh, you know, he was very polarizing with Sean in that era. So, uh, but yeah, I, I thought it was just good storytelling. It kept the story alive. Involving two of the greatest workers in the world, and how people cannot understand that is beyond me. If you're a real wrestling fan, you want to see more of this good shit. That's good shit, pal. You want to see more of that, and uh, so I thought it was very logical, very plausible. But I don't think it was a universally rece- uh, received by uh, everybody involved in the equation.
0: Uh, when when Vince walks Brett to the limo after visiting him at his home. He says to Brett, you're much smarter than people give you credit for. And Brett would write after working for the man for 12 years. I didn't know what to make of that. Jim, you know, Vince better than anyone listening to this. I'm sure did Vince sometimes say stuff like this and then catch people off guard.
1: Sure. Sure. How many times do you think I've heard stuff like that? Right. Yeah. You know, and he, when he, Vince could be so motivational, uh, if he wanted to be. You know, he told me one time. I Said, "God damn it, I I wish I could clone your ass." Okay, then you know, the next week I'm kissing his ass or something. I'm serious. but something like that. He he could manipulate you very well, but he was so respected was Vince by all of us that worked for him. By and large, the guys I saw, oh, I didn't ever like the son of a bitch. Blah blah blah. They're lying. They loved his money. They loved the fame that he that he allowed them to earn and garner. Uh, but he would say things like that, but I'll tell you this, I think what Vince saw that Brett had a great mind for booking mm. and had, and had logic that had heretofore had not been utilized by his company. And Vince would look at that as a missed opportunity. So whether, uh, you know, you're smarter than people give you credit for, I don't what people he's th- talking about. Uh, but nonetheless, he's been known to say things like that, but I think And I'm not just making excuses to the old man. I think he meant, I think he meant well by it. I think he meant that, Hey, look, we should have been using this damn mind all along. Why weren't we? I don't understand. I let myself down by not going to Brett and the old bill Watts thing. I've told you this before. You know, when you have a situation where Watts was the owner and the top baby face, he wanted to make sure heels were contributing to the creative and buying into the concept so they have skin in the game and make their main event matches with Watts uh, better because they knew that at the end of the day, Watts is going to book himself lot, a lot like we booked the Undertaker. You're going to lose by count out. You're going to lose by DQ. There's going to be blood. Uh, we're going to get to a blow off and I'm going to go over with the Oklahoma Stampede. That's how it worked. Simple formula. And we're going to do that at the Superdome. We're going to do that 4th of July, whatever it's going to be. So I think Benson saw the fact that Brett had. And it shouldn't be a surprise. He grew up in a damn business. Why wouldn't he know, understand things. And certainly he understood his program more than anybody else's because he felt it and he was living it. So, uh, I, I think there's a mixed messages in that you're smarter than people give you credit for. I think there was a, I think there was more to it than just that simple statement.
0: Really great stuff. Brett said on his plane trip back home, he's seated right next to Sean. Uh, And they talk and and Brett tells him it's to their advantage that everyone thinks they hate each other, including the boys. And Brett says, best of all, no one knew they were talking. Uh, Brett said, I told him I'd start building my heat by making some remarks about his in-ring character, but it would all be a work. And then when I come back, I'd beat him in a return match, probably around the time of WrestleMania 13. And Brett wrote quote, I could see the color drained from his face. Clearly he didn't like the sound of any of this. And then Brett then explained that he would win the belt back in the third match, talking about Sean and that Brett would endorse him. And Brett said, quote, I wanted him to know that I understood better than anyone that Vince needed him to be the WWF's next big star. And that he could trust me in the end. I didn't feel anybody could make him like I could. Do you ever talk to Sean about these proposed plans?
1: Sean didn't trust anybody. Conrad, uh, a little paranoid sometimes. Lifestyle issues, uh, you know, all these things contributed to that. He was the the smaller guy that overcame the larger guy uh, stigma uh, to become the the, the top guy. Uh, I'm not going. Sean and Brett both had this overwhelming thirst to be the number one guy in the territory. What you always want. I strive for that when we signed talent and which helped make the attitude era uh the most productive and talked about era ever in wrestling. Uh as far as live events and things of that nature because we had a lot of competition in the locker room. And I, and I always felt like that was to our advantage. Everybody stays on point, everybody doesn't go out, nobody calls anything in, everybody wants to have the best match on the show because eventually having best match on the show time. And again, is going to get you to the top of the card. So I always, always, uh, encourage that competition. And, and we had a lot of that in the attitude there. Look at those guys that everybody was wanting to want a piece of the pie, what do you think motivated the rock? You know, what, you know, he wanted to be the top guy. Well, there's this guy in Austin. that was sitting ahead of him. It caused great competition. And when, when they were on the show, the other talents that were booked preceding them knew they had to do some damn good work. Because you knew Austin and rocks piece of business was going to be stellar and it always was stellar. Uh, so that's kind of how I look at that. Sean was, he was just, I'm not so sure that he thought that, you know, that this was a, a long-term thing. I think he was insecure as I said. Uh, but you know, trust, it's all about trust. I think at the end of the day, Sean and the people surrounding him sometimes fed him with a bunch of bullshit. You can't trust Brett. And why the hell can you not trust what, what evidence, what illustrations can you give me that would tell me you can't trust Brett? There were none except somebody's ego and somebody feeding somebody that was very gullible, already insecure, more bullshit.
0: Let's, uh, let's talk about the July 1st observer. Meltzer would report that WCW was out looking for their mystery man for the third man of the NWO and everyone agreed that Brett would be the best guy for the spot. The WCW hotline even teased it, but supposedly Brett turned down every offer. Um, lots has been, lots has been made about this on my podcast with Eric about who was or wasn't going to be the third man. When you guys see this NWO storyline developing over May and June and into early July, were you nervous given your contractual status with Brett that, Hey, do we have him locked up? I only bring this up because of the Lex Luger situation where he debuted on the first nitro, do you remember you and Vince ever scratching your head and wondering, do we have something to worry about or Brett?
1: Well, sure. Anytime you get a star whose contract is, uh, the, the exit, the end date of the contract is within eyesight, so to speak within arms reach. Uh, yeah, you, you, you want to, you want to make sure that that you, you have, you have some leverage and some control over the situation, you know, I, on, on top guys, when I signed top guys, uh, if they signed a three-year deal, generally speaking, not all the time, but generally speaking, uh, we were talking, uh, renewal. If we wanted to renew or extend a better deal, whatever. Uh, and I tore, and a lot of guys that were, were had low side guarantees that had out earned it and had proven themselves to be more valuable than we had perceived originally, uh, contracts were, were tore up. And new contracts were issued before that, the existing contract expired. So we, I, that was a theory that I had, cause I didn't want to get caught with this Luger stuff. Uh, you know, even though Luger going to WCW didn't kill us, uh, and it was there, he was there issue to deal with, but, uh, we wanted to make sure that we didn't get caught with our pants down as, as so to speak, uh, on that deal. So yeah, we talked about it and I just never thought at the end of the day, if Brett was being paid fairly in his mind. And he was earning big money, which he was that he would stay because it was WWE was his home base. That was always his goal to get to WWF and become a star and become the main guy. So I thought that sentimentally it's shame on me because that's my naivete. Uh, it's when people say it's not about the money bullshit. Conrad, it's all about the money.
0: The, uh, ultimate warrior. It's somebody who would probably agree with that. And you guys are having problems with him backstage. And on July eighth, the observer would write, Brett Hart was called that morning and told that they were tired of Helwig's constant demands and wanted him for emergency duty to work Detroit and Pittsburgh to make up for Warrior not being there. For whatever reason, Hart didn't come back. A call was then made to Sid Yudi, who's been out of action for months, and he was brought back as a babyface replacement. What was Vince's reaction to Brett saying no here?
1: Well, obviously it wasn't good, right? You know, uh, he should be more loyal. You know, he owes me this and all those things, you know, he he probably would have, uh, that was a matter of communication. Look, in hindsight, what you do, if you're Vince, you get on a plane and you fly to Calgary.
0: That's exactly what he did on July 23rd.
1: So there you go. He, he tried. And he just couldn't close the deal. And anytime Vince McMahon can't close a deal, uh, there's consternation.
0: July 23rd, Vince charters a plane. This is before the company has a jet and he goes to Calgary to visit Brett. Uh, two weeks prior, at WCW's bash at the beach, Hulk Hogan turned heel and joined the NWO and Vince gave Brett a contract and told him to name his price, Vince said, allegedly, whatever you want. And during this conversation. Uh, Vince would tell Brett that Sean and Undertaker were making seven hundred grand a year. But Brett didn't sign, but he does give Vince his word that he'll return in the fall. When when Vince doesn't come back with a closed, signed, sealed, delivered contract, are you nervous? Is he is the old man trying to sell it to you? What do you remember about this?
1: No, i had encouraged Vince that you know, Brett's not a phone call guy. Too proud, uh just uh you know, all this character and integrity, you know, you, you, you should, if a guy's been with you for over a decade, doing great work, night in and night out in any environment you put him in, uh, he deserves a face to face. So if, 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 if you can, I thought that it would impress Brett that Vince made the effort to fly from Connecticut to Calgary, uh, to address him personally. And I thought that would probably close the deal. It didn't close the deal because Brett had his mind made up what he wanted to do. He was, he gave, and here's the thing you said earlier. Here, here's what gives me some solace is that Brett gave Vince his word. And to me, Brett Hart's word was golden.
0: Uh, we would see Brett come back to finish these South African shots. Like he had promised before. September 8th, he's in South Africa, getting a win over the bulldog. Same thing on the 10th. That's Brett teaming up with Mark Merrow. Uh, to beat Owen and the Bulldog. And then on the September 9th Observer, uh, some details come out. Uh, apparently, when Hart and McMahon reached a verbal agreement for Hart to return after McMahon flew to Calgary to meet with Hart in the days following the Vancouver International Incident Show, the scenario the two agreed to was a match with Steve Austin in Survivor Series, followed by appearances at the December and January pay per views. And Hart would go back on the road full time somewhere in January to build up for WrestleMania. The apparent sketchy plan would be that they would shoot an angle at the Royal Rumble to lead to the Brett and Sean return match at next year's WrestleMania. It would make sense that a title switch would take place at that show for several reasons. First off Hart made it clear. He wouldn't return unless the belt was in the cards and he was happy enough at having to put Sean over last year. It's doubtful. He'd agree to come back. If it meant putting him over a second time, second Michaels had apparently made it clear that he would put Hart over in a title match. Provided he was promised to get the belt back at a specific time in the future. Hart had told business friends he was offered substantially more money by WCW, but felt that going to that company would be a step down. In your opinion, do you believe there was a discussion? Because Bruce has always said, no, Vince didn't work like that. Do you believe that Brett was promised a title win over Sean for the belt at WrestleMania 13?
1: Uh, it's, I'm skeptical about that. But I think that what Vince could did have the ability to do is say that's a, a, that may be a great idea and we'll consider that. But committing to uh, that, I, I find a little un-Vince-like. But uh, in any event, uh, I, I don't I don't I'm not buying that one.
0: On raw championship Friday, Brian Pillman says he's going to interview Brett at the mind games, pay-per-view, but Brett's in South Africa at the time, filming an episode of the Sinbad TV show. So they turn it into an angle in which Brett appears on raw via satellite. And says he's not going to be there and never made that commitment to Pillman and around this time, they start to build on TV. The eventual Bret Hart, Steve Austin match Austin's coming out, making comments about Brett. At the in your house mind games, pay-per-view he does the in ring with Brian Pillman and Owen Hart. And among the other things that Austin says is if you put the letter S in front of Hitman, you have my exact opinions of Brett Hart. He's also oh on live wire <laughs> saying more things about it. He's going to kick the hell out of him, et cetera, man, Brett handpicking. Austin is a major moment for Austin's career. Is it not?
1: Hell yes, it was absolutely show great respect vision and Brett knew that, you know, and quite frankly, to Brett's dissenters, that Brett would have a hell of a match with Austin. And if anybody remembers WrestleMania 13, uh, they had in Chicago, they tore that son of bitch up, uh, what a great match, a double turn, hard, hard to execute and make people believe it's real. But when you got two top stars coming in and positioned in one role, and they leave, and they're in other the other antithesis of that role, the 180. It's a great artistic achievement, and uh, Brett and Steve certainly achieved that uh, in that match. So Brett had great, he had a great feel for who he could have really good matches with, and quite frankly, I don't remember Brett ever having, uh, uh, uh you know, p- picking somebody, anointing someone he wanted to work with. Conrad, that that that, that did not happen. He always had. What he said he was going to have, it was really good matches. Uh, I, I want to say something about that South African thing. I think Bruce and I produced the TVs out of there for those, uh, that little tour. And, uh, it might've been the tour that I did commentary on the South African only television show with Owen, who was phenomenal as a color analyst, quite frankly. Uh, but the, uh, I, that's what I remember about that uh, South African tour other than security issues and that talents had to be sequestered in the hotel. We couldn't leave. And it was just a little dicey in that regard. So, uh, but you know, I, I think Austin, Austin would not be where Austin arrived. He would not be where he eventually would become without his exposure and his uh, work with Brett Hart. And it shows how Brett was very unselfish and he wanted to make Steve. And I believe that nothing more, we didn't do anything more important uh, for Steve and his run, than his matches with Brett, they certainly made Steve a player.
0: Let's, uh, let's talk about something that is going to get us in a little bit of trouble here today. So we're going to start it up here on Twitter. Brett said on September 25th, he goes to Los Angeles to do a guest appearance on the Simpsons and Brett's lawyer, Barry Bloom tells Brett that Eric Bischoff wants to meet with him. And Brett said, they talk about it when he got to LA. When Brett lands and gets to his hotel, Eric is already on his way to his room. Eric asks him, allegedly, what's it going to take to bring you to WCW? And Brett supposedly said, I want the exact same contract as Hulk Hogan plus one penny. And (laughs) Bischoff said, I can't do a deal, anything like that right now. And Brett said, that's fine. I'm not really looking to go anywhere. I'm happy where I'm at. And Eric said, come on, at least give me something I can go back to my people with. And Brett said, I'll, I'll think about coming to work for you guys for 3 million a year and a lighter schedule. And Eric said he'd take that back to the Turner people in Atlanta. And according to Brett on September 27th, 1996, Bischoff offered him a contract for 2.8 million a year for three years to go to WCW. And Brett told him he'd think about it. Brett said Vince was hearing rumors that Brett had already signed. But on October 3rd, Brett called him and told him he wouldn't do anything until they talked first. Vince ended up calling him that weekend and asked Brett what the offer was. Brett told him it was 3 million for three years, working 180 dates. Vince told him he couldn't match that. And Brett said, I wasn't asking you to match it. Send me the best offer you can. And Vince said Brett would never do, or WCW would never know what to do with a Brett Hart. And in hindsight, he was right. He said he needed uh, yeah. a few days to think about it. And like Don Corleone, he would make him an offer. He couldn't refuse. And then on October 9th, Vince flew back to Calgary to give Brett this offer in person. And during the meeting, Brett told Vince about the wrestling with shadows documentary and Vince said he had no problem with getting Paul access to the matches in the backstage area. And in this meeting is where Vince offered Brett a 20 year contract for 10 and a half million dollars. It's 1.5 million a year for three years. And then five hundred grand for the next seven years as one of the senior advisors, and then two fifty a year for ten years to be on standby as the Babe Ruth of the company. And Vince allegedly tells him, quote, I'll never give you a reason to ever want to leave here. And Brett said WCW was offering almost the same amount of money, but for three years. But Brett just couldn't leave Vince. So he accepts the offer and they shake hands. And Melzer would write a lot about this bidding war. But in recent years, Eric Bischoff has said, not true. I never made such an offer and Meltzer got hot about it. And a lot of other people have argued that, no, it's true. I saw the contract and Bischoff has said, produce the offer and I'll eat it. I will live stream me eating the paperwork because it never happened. What do you believe happened and now? And what did you believe happened back then with this WCW offer to Brett and ultimately Vince having to make such a long offer? To, uh, to Brett,
1: well, you know, uh, it was a very creative offer. Uh, nothing like that offer had ever been made prior to, and I'm not so sure anything has been made sense of that nature. You know, you don't offer a pro wrestler, uh, what a 20 year contract. It's just, it's, it's not feasible in, in a lot of sense, physically burnout aging, all this other stuff. Uh, so, but as far as Brett getting the, a deal, uh, getting that deal, uh, you know, first of all, not very many people knew what the deal was, only a few of us, but I had, I had no issues with it because if Vince believed that that was financially going to be feasible to do, uh, then he would know that better than anybody else, what he could or couldn't do financially. Uh, but we were all happy that Brett, bottom line is this Conrad. Those in the inner circle there at that time were happy that we were keeping Brett, you don't want to lose Brett. I don't think the Patriots wanted to lose Tom Brady, even though they make a big story of it now, oh, it's a better for the team. Bullshit. Come on. He's won six super bowls. He's a face of your of your franchise in new England. And now he's a Tampa Bay buck. So we didn't want Brett to become a Tampa Bay buck. A lot of us, cause he, we knew what we had with him and, and it was stuff that we could not replicate or replace.
0: Right. Well, I mean, you do land him and supposedly when Meltzer gets word of the offer, it's nearly $4 million. Now it's not all in cash. There are some other things that they're going to be offering and some other opportunities, perhaps like movies and television and things like that. But it's a pretty major offer and. Meltzer would write heart, who apparently was WCW bound before meeting with McMahon, apparently changed his mind once, if not twice again, before supposedly making a final decision. And it was a secret from everyone in wrestling. Do you think this 20 year deal is something that Vince felt backed into a corner for and would have never offered and just felt. Uh, pressured to do so, and just way out of his comfort zone to offer such a lengthy contract.
1: Yeah, of course, of course, he would not have broken the mold and 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 created a new financial package and presentation if he thought that if 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 WCW wasn't in the picture and offering massive money, it would not have motivated Vince to try to get in that game. So yeah, I'm sure he was uncomfortable with that situation, and uh, you know, I. I Again, it was such a unique deal. There's no precedent for it, Conrad to go back and say, well, we did that with so and so, no, we had never done it with anybody. I don't know if it had ever been done with anybody in the history of the wrestling business. Quite honestly, I don't think it probably had. So, uh, I, I think Vince felt a little bit pressured and, uh, and, the- and the WCW component was the-, the catalyst for that.
0: Well, it's, it's funny that we're talking about this now because I think it came out well, within the last year or so that the undertaker supposedly got a lifetime contract from Vince, and I believe it's a 15 year deal well, I mean that's pretty incredible, don't you think a 15 year deal for the undertaker in 2019
1: uh, yeah it's incredible, but I, not inc- are you saying it's incredible in a bad way?
0: No, I'm just saying that that Vince you know, knowing that he has this hesitancy to do these really long-term deals. I mean, he offers a a 20-year deal here to brett when he's 38, 39. And now The Undertaker at 54, a 15-year deal, obviously not all in-ring stuff. I mean, clearly we know The Undertaker, at least for now, is retired. Uh, but these sort of, his maybe what's incredible is Vince's attitude towards um, Long-term commitments with with stars like this, who are so synonymous with the brand, the WWE, he's maybe changed his attitude about that, and and maybe maybe the financials, ha- the economics have just become more feasible for him.
1: I think the rights fees that Vince uh, uh, and WWE have uh, garnered from USA and Fox have changed that entire landscape and that pay model. Uh, you know, same reason that they had deep deep pockets and they were hiring every piece of talent they could hire because of course the speculation was that they wanted not to come to work for AEW. Right. Because at the end of the day, uh, uh last I looked Vince's uh, net worth is a little over 2 billion and Mr. Khan's net worth is, is 8.2 billion. So you don't want to see who's got the biggest uh, yeah. uh bank account. That's that would be silly. But think of this way, Conrad. Undertaker is not being signed a 15-year deal to wrestle. Right. That that's not the deal. He signed because he's earned a retirement of some sort. He is a great asset in every phase of the company. Uh, WWE has never had anybody, anybody that's more respected universally within the company and their fan base than Mark Calloway. So you don't want to take a chance that you don't have him at your disposal for whatever you may need him to do. And that, and most of that, whatever you want him to do does not include him getting back in the ring and wrestling. You know, uh, he's like, he said, he's Mark's, what, what did you say? 54. Uh, yeah. is that how old he is?
0: I think so. Yeah.
1: Wow. Damn. Makes me feel old. Uh, you don't want to lose that guy. You don't, you don't want to lose. That's how, that's like, you know, George Steinbrenner signing Mickey Mantle to a personal services contract. So you could have access to him for other functions that the New York Yankees were doing. And, uh, so I think that's where that is. I, I had no idea about the 15 years was true or not. Uh, I also know undertakers talked about retiring on other occasions and didn't. So, uh, it's just a matter of what his body's going to allow him to do. But I think there's so many things that the undertaker can do positively for WWE without ever putting his uh, ring gear on again, that makes him a good investment. Uh, and the other thing is. You know, Undertaker to me, he would be a guy that I would use as a, as a consultant on booking, uh, on what do you see in this guy? Can you imagine the value that the Undertaker is going to have when he goes to the performance center to coach up these kids? You think they're not going to listen to the Undertaker? Are you kidding me? Of course. So I I think it's a good, I think it's a good investment for Vince. I think you made a good call there. Uh, that, and I don't think one really has the Undertaker's 15 year gig at his age and Brett's 15-year gig at his age, or 20-year gig at his age, are are apples. They're apples and oranges because Brett still had plenty of years left, productive years, uh, left of uh, uh, of in-ring activity. Undertaker does not. So one's the one's one issue, one's another. Uh, but I I I know that the 20-year deal was at that time uh, was totally unique, unheard of. Uh, so, but again, as I said. The guys, guys like myself and Bruce and others that were in the inside, uh, you know, you, 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 don't want to go, you don't want to forecast how it's going to be without Brett. He's that valuable. He's that valuable. You don't want to lose him for any reason. And if events believed that the financial model of 20 years was going to work for the company then all, you know, we were there to support it.
0: Let's keep it moving here. And let's mention that, uh. Brett's old deal that he signed in September of 92 gave him the option to leave at any time with a 90 day notice. And he negotiated that when he learned the hard way in 92, when he tried to leave for WCW, while he was still the intercontinental champion, apparently those contracts were automatically renewable and only allowed the 90 day notice during certain windows each year. It's uh, I mean, I know you weren't there in 92, but do you remember on the other side thinking, Hey man. We got Brett coming to WCW
1: anytime, uh, anytime you have a possibility of getting a talent at Bret Hart's level, it excites you as a administrator, as a broadcaster, uh, without question. So, uh, but it wasn't widely discussed, uh, remember in 92, uh, the very tumultuous in WCW, it was very tumultuous for me personally. So, uh, my point of awareness was, was maintaining my own employment and, and continued growth within the company and not who was, or was not coming in, but obviously uh, not to downplay it, having the opportunity. Cause I'd never worked with Brett in 92. I never, before then, I'd, I'd never been around him that much, but I admired his work and of course, uh, you know, uh. I read the observer and, and Meltzer has always been very, uh, effusive, uh, with his praise of, of Brett and, and justifiably. So it wasn't a big issue, but again, when you got a chance, it's a chance to get a guy like Brett Hart on your, in your company, uh, you're, uh, you're, you're very, very fortunate.
0: Meltzer would write on the October 28th Observer. Bret Hart agreed to a 20 year contract with the World Wrestling Federation just prior to making the announcement of his returning on the live Monday Night Raw show from Fort Wayne, Indiana on October 21st. Hart, the subject of the biggest bidding war in the history of pro wrestling, turned down an offer from WCW in the live interview, acknowledged the offer, and praised WCW, but he only referred to that company as a rival company to the WWF, saying they treated him with honesty and integrity in the negotiations. And Hart had been asked over the weekend by the WWF to in dramatic fashion, rip up the WCW contract on live TV as a retaliation for things like having Medusa throw the women's belt in the garbage can on nitro. But Brett refused to do so. Do you remember you guys asking him to do that, to tear up the WCW deal?
1: Well, I was not involved in that conversation. If it did happen, uh, would not be surprised if it it weren't asked of Brett. Uh, to counter what Medusa did, uh, you know, the, the one upsmanship, you know, that was the competitive nature of the WWE WCW rivalry was getting hotter and hotter. Uh, you know, it was finally realized that unlike the old WCW, uh, the WCW under Bischoff was becoming uh, a viable contender because, uh, Turner had loosened the purse strings and they were, they had seemingly, I know they didn't, but they seemingly had this amazingly large talent budget. So it wouldn't surprise me if that was asked Conrad, but to answer honestly, as I try to do on the show, I don't recall it, but if it comes to the fruition that it did happen, that would not surprise me whatsoever.
0: There's another thing that Meltzer writes about that just fascinates me. He says there's yet another interesting key to this story. One of the things Hart had complained in the past that could stand in the way of his going to WCW was the presence of Hulk Hogan. It apparently in the final negotiations, McMahon talked about both Hogan and Savage's WCW contracts coming due between now and the end of the year. He suggested it was possible. And even suggested it was more than possible that one or both and Hogan being the most likely would end up in the WWF in 1997 uh, in 1997. One would think if McMahon had brought that up, that a promise that Hart would get his elusive win over Hogan. And the idea that Hogan might be there could have worked as a positive in clinching the deal. This seems silly to me, but Dave is basically suggesting maybe Brett is still sore about the way everything happened with Hogan and Yokozuna at WrestleMania nine. And it's important to him to get that win over Hogan. And Brett did write a lot about that in his book. Do you think perhaps Vince plant sowed the seeds of doubt that, Hey, maybe Hulk's coming back and maybe we can finally do that. Brett Hogan match. We never got to in 93.
1: Very possible. You know, I would not privy to those conversations. One-on-one with Vince and Brett on that topic. Uh, but I'm, I'm telling you that if that, if all that were true and there was a remote interest in Hogan, renewing his relationship with McMahon, which made Hogan famous and rich that he might consider it if it was a remote possibility uh it's certainly a nice leveraging chip, negotiating chip uh to throw into your to your formula. So I don't know that it happened, but if I had been a business physician and that situation was facing me, you're damn right I would have used it.
0: Brett, uh as we mentioned, he's in Fort Wayne on this October twenty first raw. That's when he makes the big announcement. Backstage he runs into Sean and, and asks do you mind if I say something about your Playgirl magazine spread? And he wanted to start building the heat for WrestleMania right away. Sean says, supposedly, say whatever you want. Fast forward a week, and they do a split screen with Steve Austin and Brett as we build towards Survivor Series. Brett's at his house. It's a very intense segment between the two, it's very well done. And during it is when Austin said next week he's going to visit Brian Pillman's house, which we know became the gun incident. Brett said the week before Survivor Series, Steve flew to meet him in Calgary and work out the entire match. They're standing by the ring in Brett's pool room. And Steve told Brett he didn't feel Sean was the right guy to lead the company. So Brett's feeling like, hey, man, I'm justified in my feelings towards Sean, I guess. And that gets us to Survivor Series, which recently re-aired on FS1 of all places. And this is one of my favorite pay-per-views ever. It goes down from Madison Square Garden, November 17th. Brett pins Austin in a truly classic match, 28 and a half minutes. Meltzer gives it four and a half stars. And Brett said that he felt like Vince and Jr were taking subtle cheap shots at him during the commentary. What do you think of, uh, what'd you think of the match? And what do you think of Brett saying that you and Vince were taking subtle cheap shots at the Survivor well, series,
1: match? The match was great. The match is great, quite frankly, again another major significant building block in getting austin to the next level mm-hmm. through the uh, compliments and the efforts of brett hart uh we the plan was uh you know that brett was going to become a heel uh, and so i don't you know I, conrad, uh, conrad i can't remember uh, that commentary this many years later you know sub, the subtleties that he's talking about but if that's his, uh, uh, if that's Brett's, uh, feeling, I, I can't just, I can't, dis- I can't d- deny it. Right. I can't say, well, no, no, you're, you're just being paranoid and, and maybe he was a little paranoid, but, uh, I, I don't, I, I don't remember ever taking massive cheap shots at Brett Hart in a match like that. You have very little time to do uh, background stuff now. A lot of companies are doing that now where you have action in a ring and they're, they're wrestling and they're working holes occasionally or slapping their leg. Where the fuck, uh, God damn it. Slap my leg. Uh, that, uh, you know, you're, you're too busy, but knowing that sometimes it's not what you say, it's what you don't say, uh, in commentary, but we knew eventually that Brett was going to be uh, a, a wrestling heel, which is my favorite characterization in all of wrestling, a wrestling heel, love it. So, uh, I don't remember taking shots and I was never told to take shots. Remember McMahon was in the lead. I'm not passing the shit off to him and not taking any responsibility. I followed like the guys that were, I work with now. I'm the point guy in AEW and Shavani and Excalibur. I don't say they follow me, but somebody has got to start the conversation. Somebody's got to get us, get us into the uh, into the show from the break and take us to the break and navigate those waters. And that's what McMahon's role was at that time as the owner and the lead commentator. So my role was to fit into that scenario. But, uh, but I'm not going to disagree with Brett that the cheat shots term might be something I wouldn't use, but I understand how he would use it. And I don't have any lack of res- respect or a- angst. That, uh, he wrote that in his book.
0: I mean, Austin is a made man after this survivor series match. I mean, what a, a fall he's had. I mean, I guess you could go back to the summer though. I mean, he wins King of the ring cuts, the Austin three sixteen promo, uh, then has, uh, a rather interesting encounter with Yokozuna on the free for all where Yoko breaks the top rope on the free for all. But then as we get into September, he starts the trash talk with Brett. Uh, he has the whole gun thing with Pillman in October. On November, he's at a sold-out Madison Square Garden in a tremendous match with Bret Hart. Austin is a star on the rise in a, in a big-time match like this with a ton of time to tell a story. And he locks in the finish. It's the famous finish from WrestleMania eight where he's got the Million Dollar Dream on, which at the time was one of his finishing maneuvers. And Bret pushes off the top rope, uses his own weight to... And while he's in the submission move, catch the pin on Steve Austin. On the other side of this, Brett has made Steve a much bigger star, has he not?
1: Oh my God, absolutely, absolutely. And look, they're two peas in a pod, man. They're two peas in a pod. Quite frankly, those cats. Uh, they they had a lot of similarities: strong pride, strong feelings about their work, their love of the profession they chose, lifelong fans. There's so many similarities in Bret Hart and Stone Cold. And that, especially in that particular point in time, and uh, I'm sure. And I know Steve uh, still talk to Steve, uh, you know, often he's, he's never said a negative word about Brett right? ever, ever. So, uh, it's really cool, man.
0: Well, we know that the stipulation of this match is the winner gets a title shot. Uh, at the uh, pay-per-view in December, which is in your house, it's time. Of course, the original plan was probably for Vader to beat Sean at survivor series. We'll talk about why that didn't happen. And instead Sid won the title another time, but now it's Sid and Brett for the main event in Florida of, uh, in your house, it's time. But the next night on raw, the night after the survivor series, Brett would beat Owen. And then they're back across the water. As they say Uh, on November 27th in London, Brett beats Vader. On the 28th at Birmingham, Brett beats Mankind by DQ. In Dubai on December 2nd, it's a one-night King of the Ring tournament. Brett would beat Bulldog, and then he beat Austin in the finals to win the tournament. And let's fast forward to December 15th at West Palm Beach in your house. It's time pay-per-view. It's Sid and Brett. Sid gets the win with a clean powerbomb in about 17 minutes to retain the title. And after the match, Brett attacks Sean at ringside, who was doing commentary at the time. So we're well on our way to our WrestleMania main event. Meltzer gives it three stars. You talked about, you know, how Brett liked working with some of the other guys, whether it's Brett or Owen or Sean, or even Austin, what do you think about working with Sid?
1: Um, well, come on. Uh, Sid was an attraction, right? Uh, he was a different breed of cat. He was a different flavor of ice cream here. So uh, different deal. It was a different deal. No doubt. Uh, but still Brett looked at those situations as challenges because you know, it's, uh, it reminds me of the time that, you know, that Stu told me about, uh, stretching that to uh, Wayne Coleman, uh, the big muscle guy became superstar, Billy Graham. I'm him cry. It was kind of like the challenge of this big monster. How can, what kind of match can I have with this big monster? Right. And, uh, so. Yeah, I, it was, but a different breed of cat, no doubt, a different ball game, different type talent. Austin was a bell to bell, everyday wrestler. Uh, Sid was best booked, best utilized as a special attraction. Uh, and so there, there's this different, uh, breeds of cat in that, in that deal, but you know, he, he had, but Brett had the same thing, you know, back in that, that, that November 27th in London, uh, he worked with, we had him work, book with Vader. And big guys, different, a different body type. Brett liked those challenges. He liked taking guys that people perceive could not have a great match with him because they weren't quote unquote wrestlers, uh, fundamentally catch-as-catch-can, uh, wrestlers. But golly, he, uh, he, 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 he prided himself in being able to do that. And, and, and I don't remember him ever failing.
0: Well, they certainly stretched him to the limit when he comes back here on December 17th, he's working in Daytona beach with the Sultan who we know is going to become Rikishi, but the Sultan here, uh, on the December 23rd, raw Brett would be the fake razor Ramon by submission. Oof! This is a weird time in the company.
1: Is it not Brett and yeah. fake razor? Yeah, it was not good. And I was unfortunately implicated in that shit. <laughs> oh, really? I mean, come on. It's all ego and. You know, we'll get back at them and we'll prove it to them. We uh, are that we have this intellectual property. Vince could say all the right things that have, and they all made some sense. Yes, you do own the intellectual property. Yes, you did get shafted in your view, blah, blah, blah. But, uh, the fake razor, fake diesel thing to me was one of the more embarrassing. Angles that I was involved in, in uh, WWE. It was, it was a lash out on from a personal level. And of course, uh, you know I don't know that anybody. You know, I, I I talked. I asked Vince, God Almighty, why are we doing this? Right. So it's you know well we have to protect our intellect. to him it's protecting our intellectual property. To me, it was protecting his ego and showing them that he was going to fight back.
0: December twenty sixth, Rosemont Horizon, Austin's going to team with Vader, and they pick up a win over Brett and Sean. So this is kind of interesting, on the heels of in your house, it's time where Sean and Brett get into it ringside. Now they're tag team partners here in Chicago. Let's fast forward a few days to raw on the 30th of December, Brett and Savio would team up to beat Austin and Farouk by DQ. But later in the show, they do an in-ring with Brett and Sean going face to face for an interview and Brett's mic keeps going out. And Sean was great. As he sarcastically says. Uh, he wasn't worthy of going first ahead of the almighty Brett. And then Brett rips on Sean saying he promised to carry the title with prestige and class, but never came close and said that if you're not 14 and female, you're not into Sean. (laughs) And he refers to the current gimmick of attempting to portray Sean as a man's man by saying, whose man is he? And just as Sean starts his comeback, Sid shows up, points out that he beat both and asked for some competition. The lights go out. The undertaker's music comes on and he shows up as all this is going on. Vader's trying to attack the undertaker, but undertaker beats him up Taker and Sid now go face to face. Vader's back up again. Brett goes to leave the ring, but Sean crotches him with the ropes and does a plancha on Sid and everybody's brawling and we're ready for the Royal rumble. And, uh, it looks like final four, even at this point, it's, um, a pretty remarkable end. To nineteen ninety six for Bret Hart. This is uh a very different year in Brett's career, but we know what's about to happen in ninety-seven is gonna yield his best work and maybe the most controversial ending ever. But that'll be a story for another time. We're gonna put a bow on today's episode, Bret Hart in nineteen ninety six. This is a fascinating story, and knowing what's coming in the following year, it's unlike any other. Isn't that right, Jim?
1: Oh man, are you kidding? one of the most significant years of all time for a lot of different reasons. Uh, attitude era, kind of getting this rearing its head, and developing what it was going to be. Uh, but yeah, following Brett's career in 97, uh, and what it eventually led to, you know, I, I believe Conrad and, and we'll probably probably do this cause we're very, our fan friendly to our, our folks that support us. I'm sure we're going to revisit. There's a lot more Bret Hart stories.
0: Oh my gosh.
1: And, uh, you know, his, the night finishing the 97, you know, the Montreal screw job, uh, you know, Brett for years was pissed at me because he felt very confident that I, because I was so close to Vince, uh, in my role there at that time that I was quote unquote in on it. And I, and I, I finally got, he and I met someplace or worked someplace, same place, same time, and had a chance to have a conversation about that. And I looked him right in the eye and said, you know. I can't make you believe me. I can't make you, uh, understand that I had nothing to do with this scenario. You know, all I knew is when I went out to do commentary with Lawler in Montreal, that the proposed finish, and you know, my philosophy of not knowing all the details, I don't need to know all the information. I'm not an internet person to the standpoint or social media person. Well, I need all the details. How does the movie end? I didn't want to know that stuff. All I knew is the working title, so to speak, was a a disqualification and I didn't even know who was going to get disqualified. It didn't matter because the title would not have changed. So, uh, and, and he, he saw that I was being honest and forthright and talking to him with respect. And from that point forward, we never had another, another, another issue. And by the way, we didn't have issues during that, that incubation period for lack of a better term of, of him believing that I was in on it, uh, whatsoever we never had a call, never had any, you know, verbal issues. He handled it like a man. And if, as far as I was concerned, but I know that he had told people that he knew that I was in on it, but how did you know I was in on it? Guilt by association because of my role. And I, I've told this story before I, I was pissed at that. I said, Vince, how the hell can you not tell me what you're fucking going to do because J R you're the head of talent relations. And if the talent knew that you were in on it because it was not going to be a popular decision, they would lose confidence in you. They would lose trust in you. And when they told me that, it made all the sense in the world. So I got off my high horse and said, "I understand. I appreciate the uh, you protecting me." But uh, you know, this whole '97 was what a year, man. It was a, uh, it was absolutely amazing, and it made every TV interesting because you just never knew, by God, what was going to happen at TV. The, the, the personal animosities kept growing and festering. And I think there's where, uh, Vince, myself, whomever else was there at the time could have done a better job of getting these guys together and, uh, and, and and trying to clear the air to some degree. Let's come up to some level of compromise, but we didn't do that. We didn't do that to my, knowledge. I don't remember it. So in, in, in hindsight, look, hindsight can be a lot of things, Conrad. I'm sure you could look back on your life and say, man, if I had that to do over again, here's how I would do it. It right. wouldn't be that way. It'd be a different way. And that's my life is that way as well. So, uh, uh, it was an interesting year. So there's a lot more Bret Hart content. And I know our audience likes to, to hear about Brett because of the respect they have for him and they still have for him. You know, he's universally respected. You know, we brought him into AEW to present the first title. And, uh, that's how much he's respected. It wasn't the he was in fact, he's going to come to work for AEW. But Bret Hart anointing somebody much like he did Stone Cold Steve Austin means something and it still means something. He's still that respected in the wrestling business. So anytime you and I can talk about Bret Hart and in, on, under any context, I'm always in for that deal.
0: I can't wait to do it again. I had a blast talking 1996, looking forward to covering Brett's 97 with you another time. Uh, but I'm looking forward to next week because next week we're going to do something you and I've never done before. Uh, we're going to watch the June 6th, 1998 episode of nitro. This is the nitro from the Georgia dome that broke all kinds of records, not just for WCW, but even cable television. It's the most watched wrestling match in history. At that point on cable TV, it was Goldberg dropping, or I'm sorry, Hulk Hogan, dropping the world title to Goldberg. What a big night it was. I'm looking forward to watching that with you, Jim. I think, uh, it might be a goosebump moment for us.
1: I've never seen that show ever. One second of it, you know, on those Monday nights, I was a little bit busy. Uh, and the last thing I wanted to do was, uh, to get home and watch more wrestling of somebody's product that I couldn't, couldn't control. I was all about what we were doing and managing the talent roster and, and booking live events and things of that nature. Uh, but I've never seen that show. So it'll be a first for me. And also Conrad, before we get off the air here today, I want to thank the fans for supporting us on AEW, you know, uh, uh, fighter fest. A significant event for all of us. It was a big accomplishment. Uh, We thought we had a a hell of a show. Uh, I believe next week's show, the second part of Fighter Fest, is going to be equally as good. The talents are motivated. You know, uh, the little engine that could is still roaring along here and growing. So I want to thank everybody for joining us on TNT, like you can every Wednesday night at 8, 7 Central, and uh, supporting what we're doing. Uh, You know, I know that for for Tony and I, uh, we're having the time of our life. We really are. And it's not knocking, well, they're knocking everybody else they used to work for, not whatsoever. It's just a good time in our professional lives right now. And so I hope that shows in our work. And again, I appreciate everybody tuning in uh, for that, uh, did real well. And next week we'll just, we have the challenge to do a better show. And that's what we plan on doing.
0: We are excited to uh, see part two of fighter fest. It's next week on AEW on TNT it's dynamite. Don't miss it. Uh, and of course, if you'd like to go ahead and catch the July 6, 1998 Nitro, well, it's going to be early over at adfreeshows.com. You don't want to miss it or the Bobby Lashley episode. Coming up later in the month, we'll have Fully Loaded 2000. And then we're going to do an all raw watch along. So it's going to be a fun July. And then we've got great stuff planned for August, including one of our most requested shows I've heard about, SummerSlam 2000. Yes, it will be on the docket for August. Until next time, though, I highly recommend that you pick up Under the Black Hat. You can get a personalized from JR and get all your great grilling accessories you might need, your sauces, uh, of course, the main event mustard, the Chipotle ketchup. You don't want to miss it. It's jrsbbq.com. Check it out right now. And if you want to sport some action up by the pool while you're grilling, go ahead and pick up a shirt at jimrossshirts.com. He is at JR's BBQ. I am at Hey Hey, it's Conrad. And we are out of time. We'll see you next week right here on Grillin' JR with the voice of wrestling, Mr. Jim Ross.
1: John brings his skewed sense of humor. Jeff brings tips to cut strokes off your next round. Together, it's those weekend golf guys. They'll pay a lot of money to PXG and Tylus and Callaway and blah, on right How many yards do you think you're going to pick up with that extra? Effort? I think I can get an extra five to ten. What if I give you 15 to 20? Can <laughs> <laughs> you pay me more? Jeff Smith right? teaches on the sliding scale. <laughs> Those Weekend Golf Guys, the podcast, part of the Believe Network. Just search B-L-E-A-V on YouTube or wherever you listen.